welcome back once again to the Coffee and Heroes podcast. It has been a minute as uh, myself and Keith have been rather busy recently, but we're jumping straight back in with our favorite type of podcast and that's a creator interview. So uh, your host is always Alan, the owner and operator of Coffee and Heroes. I'm joined by Keith, now finally back in his own flat, having been on the road for the last four to six weeks. <laughs> yeah, how are you? It's nice to see you. Awesome to see you too. And we have a lot of recording to do in the next few weeks, just so you're oh, pre-warned. We do, we do. A lot of fun stuff coming to our uh, our small but dedicated audience. But before we get to that, as I say, we've got a creator interview today. And this is one we've been looking forward to for a while. We, we first reached out a, a few months ago, uh, a particular single issue series we were very much enjoying. And now the timing is perfect because it's hitting trade paper back this week. It is a title from Boom Studios called The Last Witch. As I say, trades are hitting this week, and this comes from writer Connor McCreary, who's also worked on Kill Shakespeare for IDW, various other things, but we're going to be talking a lot of Last Witch because we were fans. So coming to us all the way from Canada, no less, two in the afternoon for him, seven o'clock at night for us. How are you keeping, sir? I'm keeping well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, it's good, to, it's good to have a chance to chat with you guys. This has been a, a, long, time, a long time percolating. <laughs> it, certainly, it certainly has. As Alan says, you know, we... Uh, we 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 uh, really enjoyed you know the 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 last witch five issue mini series from from Boom and uh, your name stood out there and that uh, you were very very uh, forthcoming whenever we uh, whenever we 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 got in touch and it has been a wee while in the making uh, we we've backed and forth we've been uh, we've been uh, variously unavailable or, or or trying to make things happen so it is it is lovely to have you so whereabouts in Canada are you Connor I'm in Toronto or as we like to say here Toronto. <laughs> in Toronto, so I'm in, you know, Blue Jays country. I mean, can, you know, we've got, we've got, you know, we've really, we're the only city that has an homage to testicular cancer built into our waterfront. Because if you really look at it, you will see you've got the CN Tower, great phallic symbol that it is, and then tucked in at the very bottom is the Sky Dome, which is well, now the Rogers Center, which is the baseball stadium. But on the other side, there's there's no matching oval type structure. So yes, you know Toronto, the city that just wants you to remember testicular cancer is serious. Yeah, check yourselves, boys. Check yourselves. Yeah, check your boys. Check your boys, boys. And that was a public service announcement from uh, Connor McCray. Uh, so I mean, <laughs> tell us a bit about yourself. You know, your background. What what pushed you in the direction of of writing comics then? Uh, well, you know, I, I wanted to be a doctor and uh, you know help people with testicular. No, sorry. Um, <laughs> Uh, honestly, I mean, writing was a bit weird. It's funny when people talk to me about this, like, oh, you always did you always want to be a writer? And the, the short answer is no. Um, when I was younger, I thought I was going to be an actor. Uh, that was really the thing I was really in love with. And I think I found out early that I don't I didn't think I had the temperament. Right. Acting is a lot of rejection, you know, and I think early on I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle that, you know. And so it was something that I, I ended up. You know, I went to university. I, I had a major in business, but I had a minor in theater. Uh, I did a little bit of theater stuff, um, but it never—it just was never something that I, I ended up, I think, having the guts to really pursue. So then, of course, I ended up becoming a writer, where you never get rejected and nobody tells you you stink at all. But I—I uh, I kind of, uh, for a while, I was working. Uh, you know, I worked in a lot of film and television for quite a while after that. So I worked in development. I actually did end up writing uh, some uncredited scenes for a science fiction show that was was built out here in Canada. Um, and I was working with my friend Anthony Delcall, and we'd always been trying to come up with with ideas. We actually, we created a kids' TV show called um, uh, Global RPS, which was kind of like Scooby-Doo meets Pokemon, uh, but with like rock, paper, scissors, and giant monsters. And we actually sold that, and it got developed, and then but it didn't go. And I, I wrote a... Uh, 
a feature film called Bike Man, which was an animated feature film. This was a while ago now when feature animation wasn't quite as widespread, right? It was kind of like, you know, Pixar was barely coming on the scene. And so we had a company in Montreal who was like, wow, like it was me and a, another friend of mine. Wow, we really like this. Like, you know, we want you to be, you know, we think we, we think you might be our second animated feature film. Wow, this is amazing. Well, except they went bankrupt after the first one. Um, and so working with Anthony, you know, we, we did this Global RPS. We, we actually had another show, a kid's show uh, called The Two Best Pests uh, that people were really, really excited about. Uh, and it was about a, a Madagascarian hissing cockroach and a French Canadian sewer rat who was also a pastry chef as they helped turn around the fortunes of this little Toronto eatery. And if that sounds vaguely familiar to you, it's because Ratatouille, but that didn't exist yet. And this is pre-internet people. So this is what happened when before the internet existed as a force and there was like a million screen rant websites and all this stuff. You didn't know what big shit was coming down the pipe until they told you. So we were in the middle, we were talking to this animation company. There was one guy there who just like, he loved it. it we want, kind of wanted to be a little bit like Fraggle Rock. So maybe animation, but maybe some puppeteering, very much a helping show, very in love with it. And he loved it too. And then all of a sudden, Ratatouille gets announced. Oof. And he, and he calls up, he's like, I'm really sorry. Cause we've been playing, you know, Dave and Tom, we're gonna do a sizzle reel, we're gonna sell this around. We're gonna Forrest Gump, this is how old this was. Forrest Gump was still a point of reference as a pop culture thing. We were gonna take our characters and have them jump through classic Canadian kids TV shows sort of thing. And yet he calls us up and he's like, I don't know if you've heard of this thing called Ratatouille. And I was like, no, I haven't. He's like, well, it's about a, my, you know, it's about rats in a, in a kitchen. Like, we're done. <laughs> and to this day, wow. it is like the only Pixar movie I have not watched. Even though I know it is by most accounts, it's like one of the three best Pixar movies ever. Uh, the scars are still too fresh, gentlemen. They're too <laughs> fresh. So yeah, I should have been an actor, just had people punch me in the face. But, you know, Anthony and I kept progressing. We kept pushing. We we're like, something's going to hit. And eventually we came up with this really weird idea for this comic called Kill Shakespeare. Um, and that all came from us joking around about the idea of like the movie Kill Bill. And what if you tried to kill a different Bill? And we we're like, oh, well, what if it was like Bill Clinton? And we're like, ah, that's too political. Oh, what if it was Bill Cosby? And they were like, well, actually, that's way too political. <laughs> but in retrospect, we might have been on to something. Uh, and then finally, we made this joke, oh, what if it was Billy Shakespeare? And, you know, and Anthony's like, haha, yeah, for sure. Like, you know, he's like, what if it was Billy Shakespeare? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'd be like, you know, uh, Juliet and Romeo would be on one side and Richard III and Lady Macbeth would be on the other and Hamlet wouldn't be able to make up his mind whose side to be on. And we're like, ha, 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 ha. And then we're like, actually, mm. there's something kind of fun about that idea. And then that's when we just started coming together and saying, well, you know, for those who don't know, Kill Shakespeare is this kind of weirdo fantasy adventure comic. It takes all of Shakespeare's characters, puts them in the same world, and then pits them against each other on this quest to end all tragedy by tracking down and killing this evil wizard William Shakespeare. And so, yeah, we, the more we started thinking about it, the more we were like, well, shit, like, what if Juliet lived? Like, who would she be, right? Like, she's this young woman of privilege. She's born to a wealthy family. You know, she dies or almost dies in our world because of, like, uh, you know, I mean, what's the number one complaint for when people have Romeo and Juliet? It's like, well, they're teenagers. They kill each other. Like, come on. And so, yeah, like, she's this woman's like, I almost threw my life away. Like, I tried love, but look what happened to me. Like, I got to be about something bigger. And so she becomes this leader of a rebellion in the Kill Shakespeare world. And that just, you know, we just kind of built on that. And we were really fortunate when we first came up with that idea, which is more than a decade ago, uh, the, the landscape was a little different. I mean, Image was just really starting to kill it on a consistent basis with these creator-owned titles. And a lot of the other publishers were like, how do we get into that? And we were fortunate. We came along the time where there was 
kind of like today where, you know, you've, we started to see a mushrooming of comic companies. You know, there's starting to be a few more options again. And yeah, we were, we were lucky. We found four or five companies that got this weird Justice League of Shakespeare idea and were looking for indie stuff. And yeah, it was it was it was perfect timing for us. IDW ended up being the great, you know, they were known for all the horror books, you know, 30 Days mm -hmm. of Night. And they wanted to just do Ted Adams, who was there, and uh, Greg Goldstein, everybody else. Uh, you know, it really, it was Ted, and it was and Chris Ryle uh, and Dirk Wood. You know, were just like, hey, this is like it's lowbrow enough because Shakespeare is very lowbrow in so many ways, but it's it's got that highbrow Shakespeare, and we we kind of want to show the world that IDW could do a lot of different things, and nobody will expect IDW to do a Shakespeare comic. So let's go do this. And you know, we did we've done five volumes and. One day I still intend to get back there and, you know, because I know where I want that story to go. But that was kind of how we broke in. And it was at that point where I was like, oh, I guess I'm a writer. But when I look back, I look back and it was really from when I was, I remember being 10, 11, 12 years old and me and my buddies writing these weird wrestling comics when we should have been like paying attention in French or math. And so I do look back and I'm like, oh man, I was writing way more before, and comics too way before I ever said it. But I, if you'd asked me three years ago, I would have said, oh, well, it wasn't really until Kill Shakespeare or maybe I, you know, I had some day jobs where, I, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, I was a writer for a, for a broadcast news channel. So I was writing, but it wasn't creative writing. It was digesting the news and giving you your 30 second headline at the, you know, at the hour kind of thing. So yeah, it was a, definitely a weird journey. And I, so what I like to take from that for people who are listening, <laughs> if anybody's still listening, is that idea that like, you know, you don't need to have the MFA, which is great if you do, you know, we're all natural storytellers, right? That's what humans do more than anything else. We tell stories. That's We are designed to tell stories and create stories, even if it's trying to explain, like, where the dent in the car came from. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and that, you know, that, and that it's something anybody can do, and you don't need to have that training. You don't need to have to worry. You just have to fall in love with a good story in your head and start writing. Um, and so, yeah, that's, the, if, not the, if nothing else, hopefully I'm a lesson where, there shouldn't be any barriers if you don't feel you came from the right background or, but I'm not a writer. Well, yeah, you're a writer. You just, you just need to keep writing. I think that's everything we needed to ask. Good job. <laughs> I think you covered our entire <laughs> script right there. No, I mean, that's brilliant. I certainly, you know, I certainly agree that, you know, stories are the, you know, in some ways the, the lifeblood, you know what I mean? That's, but it's interesting to, to, to hear it put that way. Um, and with regard to that, you know, that transition from you, you were, you were in, in movies and, and, and TV shows to to comic book writing. I mean, was that a was that, was that you, the way you told it there? It seemed very natural. I, I, I decided I wanted less money. Um, no, <laughs> no. I mean, I you know because like in film and TV, like I was very much working. Like I did a little bit of un, uncredited writing, but mostly you know I was I was working as a development executive. I'm reading scripts, or I'm you know basically doing you know for small production companies, you're doing everything from the photocopying to like. You know, I got to meet with directors and talk to them about their work and stuff. It was great. Uh, and then, you know, from there I moved on to broadcast journalism, which is very much, you know, it was a journalism job. I have no journalism background either, right? That's another career I walked myself backwards into. Uh, and I was fortunate. You know, I, I, I did well enough that I got to work in a couple of continents as a journalist. But, yeah, I mean, it honestly just came because, you know, once that itch of having completed a story, you know, Alan – you know, you, we've talked about writing before the podcast began, and you know, I, I think like once you once you kind of tell a story all the way through, you just kind of get hungry to tell the next one. Once you you know, once that happens, and so yeah, we were just Anthony and I were just like we we got to get something out there, and Kill Shakespeare popped in, and 
you know, at first it was because we just thought it was a funny idea. And then the more we built it, the more we're like, oh man, like we really, we really care about this idea. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, 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 this is great. You know, I think it's the best thing about comics. It's still this way, maybe not as much as it was a decade ago, but it's still the kind of industry where you can go to a convention and walk up to a booth. And if it's not busy, you can introduce yourself to an editor or a publisher, you know, and say who you are and hand them a package. And if the work is good and interesting, they'll call you back. You know, you, you don't, it doesn't have the layer upon layer. And, you know, that's one of the things I love about comics. That's why you get so many different interesting stories in comics. I'd argue, I'd argue comics is telling a broader, broader, broader style of narrative than anything but prose. And even with prose, it's pretty close. I, uh, it's interesting what you're saying about, about conventions. I had an interesting convention experience in Derry a few years ago where uh, I just uh, I was in Derry at the time and had wandered into a convention. I think I told you this story in the Guild Hall. And uh, there was there was Al Ewing who had just started the Immortal Hulk sitting at a table, nobody around him. I was like, what? <laughs> so we had a, a bit of a yarn, a bit of a yarn. But uh, but yeah, but speaking of, uh, speaking of Connor, your latest wet work, uh, as we've spoken about, you know, the last witch, and we'll get into that in detail in a wee bit of time. But it's it's got some very front and center connections to Ireland and Irish mythology. Do you want to tell us a wee bit about what connects you to this little island of ours? Oh wow, okay. I mean, so I guess for those of you who uh, who are seeing this mug and hearing the name, you know, there's so I'm I'm of Irish descent. So my dad was born in Dublin, uh, north side of the Liffey. Uh, you can decide whether that's the right or the wrong side. Um, that's a yeah, whole so like, other podcast. That, that is a whole other podcast. <laughs> you know, and it's a dub too, right? I, I didn't know until you go visit Ireland. I was like, oh, yeah, typical dub. Um, <laughs> which my dad actually isn't, randomly enough. But um, yeah, so yeah, my, my, you know, my dad was born in Ireland. Uh, I, I was raised, it was funny. My dad, he, when he emigrated to Canada, he, I think he made that decision. He didn't want to, he wanted his kids to be Canadian. Right. He, 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 so he was, I wouldn't say like he didn't talk about our heritage, but it was never like a point of focus. We didn't, we didn't get sent to, you know, Irish culture classes or, you know, they weren't trying to make us the two up, the two male Irish dancers of the local troupe, you know. Um, well, I did try to push my son to do that. Um, <laughs> but they, they just wanted him so badly. Um, my, you know, my daughter's done a little bit of that, but it just wasn't his, like, you know, so I grew up, but the one thing he did talk to us about was he would tell us the stories, right? Cuchulain, you know, uh, that was, I remember the Cuchulain stories that my dad would tell me. And I don't know if, how many of them were actual and how many of them were just what a tired guy who'd worked for 12 hours that day and he's got to get his son asleep. So whatever comes into his head, but I remember these Cuchulain stories. And so, you know, I started buying these Irish fairy tales and I, I have this big book of Irish fairy tales by Michael, he's edited by Michael Scott, which I think is one of the great ones. Um, and it, you know, and I, what I loved about Irish mythology is the fact that it's dark, right? Like, you know, I mean, uh, you know, your audience knows this, you know, it's like, I'm talking to people who know this stuff, but you know, for North Americans, you know, like, so Canadians, I would say we have a darker sense of humor. We've got a more British sense of humor than Americans do. And, you know, I look at it as I'm like, and then I, Irish humor is another few steps past that in terms of sardonic and being dark and and heroes don't always win right in irish fairy tales right like it, you know it's like the old brothers grim right I, I remember when i first read um the little mermaid the brother grim the first time and found out that 
she dies at the end and going into the water feels like knives being stabbed into her body and she turns into seafoam, right? And like, that's how that story ends. She doesn't win the guy's heart. She loses and she dies and it's awful. And Irish mythology has that, right? Like, you know, uh, there's so many of those stories where you're like, and if the hero wins, they don't live to see the victory or they don't really get what they want or the princess has left them or if it's a princess, the pr like, and so I, I really love the fact that those stories, and I think when you write for kids, I think the best stories for your kids are the ones that are a little too scary and the ones that the kids are like, this might not work out. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I think if you're telling a story to kids, a, a proper adventure fairy story, fairy tale and a kid doesn't get the trembling lower lip or the big eyes or the. But that's not going to happen, is it? Like if, if they don't have some real fear that I think you're really missing an opportunity because, you know, that's what you love as kids. And I think that's what Irish mythology gives in so much. And, you know, and I've been fortunate enough to, to get to go back and I've you know, been able to spend some time in Ireland and, you know, travel to Northern Ireland a few times. Uh, one time on a bus where I learned the very important distinction between Derry and Londonderry, um, <laughs> which was a useful thing to know. Um, and yeah, so, you know, and so I've always, you know, I've, you know, my relatives there and I, you know, I think I probably romanticize Ireland, you know, the Republic and the North in the sense of, you know, every place when you live there is just, is just the place with its own stuff. But I mean, you go and you're just like, it, it is a place of storytellers and it's a place of laughter and it is a place of, of not really giving a fuck sometimes. And, you know, I just I just think it's, you know, it's a place I love to visit. And I, you know, we talked about this before, but eventually I'm hoping to bring my family and really get my kids a chance to see, you know, just to see where the stories come from. And my kids, you know, the greatest thing about doing something last witch is I've got an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a newborn, but he doesn't count for the purposes of this discussion. Sorry, Pierce. Um, <laughs> but, like, it's so cool to give them something and to read them something. And, you know, they're I wouldn't say they're my harshest critics, but they're definitely like, there's definitely changes in The Last Wish from like, you know, my son or my daughter being like, but that doesn't make sense. How come that happens if that happens? And I'm like, I do not have a good answer for that. <laughs> go to I'm sleep. To be changing that in the lettering. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Now go to your room. <laughs> Brilliant. It's funny, actually, you mentioned the kid with the trembling lip and the, uh, and the big eyes because uh, right there in the front cover of, uh, of, of The Last Wish number one, we have bram hiding behind a blanket and the uh, big eyes and uh, what i assume is a trembling lower <laughs> so uh yeah very very good i think that's yeah the, i mean it, it's, it's funny because well i don't want to i don't want to over talk about the last witch but <laughs> before time but uh i mean i would argue you know that that darkness that that you find in those fairy tales you know uh, we talk about the, the last witch is an all-ages book but it definitely cleaves towards the the dark side of the the all-ages well yeah and that's i mean like one of the things like that so you know so i guess to take a step back for people who may not be aware so the last witch you know it, it's meant to be a fairy tale it's about a young woman who has a strange birthmark it's always she, she's always been a bit of an outcast in her village her her mom has pa had passed away you know, at the tail end of one of the famines. We never really nailed down which famine, but it's somewhere, you know, yeah, partially because I just didn't want to have to be responsible for getting things historically accurate. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm only so, you know, sometimes you got to be lazy. Um, and yeah, and she she has a strange mark and her and this other young boy, and she always feels like an outcast. And they have this competition of like, go out into the woods. There's an old crumbling tower. That's where some witch is supposed to live. And that's where the last witch starts is her and this boy going into the woods on basically a dare 
with her wanting to get there first to come back so she can show to everybody she's the bravest kid in the village. Mm. And then things don't work out as she expects, and it, it becomes a story about a young woman who's got to stop a coven of witches before they destroy Ireland and then perhaps the world. Um, and so from that perspective, yeah, Keith, like, you know, the stakes are pretty high. Mm. And I think, like, the first, you know, as we get into book two, some of the, it gets darker on a personal level. Like, we've, we've kind of, like, we've seen the scariest witch, um, but things start to get darker. And the emotional arc for Saoirse, our main character, I think gets a little scarier. And I, you know, I, I do, I hope it's a book, you know, I, I always wanted it to be a book that, you know, that parents could read with their kids and really enjoy that the kids can enjoy but also you know you, you kind of hope that some of these kids are going to sit there and be like you know 15 years from now some two people are going to run into each other and kind of hit it off or fall in love because they both love this same weird little graphic novel oh my god that scared the yeah i read that so you know like you kind of want to have that hope and so yeah that's that's kind of what you pour into it and i think the darkness you know, nothing happens in this book that you couldn't, you know, like I said, I've got an eight or six year old, like nothing happens that you can't read with them. But I do, you know, I do hope that it's one of those books where every once in a while, you know, you take a break and you look down at the the little one, if you're reading it to a little one, you're like, are you okay? Should we keep going? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's keep going. You know, like <laughs> that, that, that's, you know, but that's the kind of father I am. So maybe child services is about to get called at the end of this podcast, right? Like, well, I mean, speaking of darkness, this just seems like a natural progression of a question. The world for the last year and a half has been quite dark, to say the least. I mean, obviously, as as a writer yourself, you know, I was just curious, you know, how has your, you know, work ethic coped or adapted to lockdown restrictions? You know, it's, is it fair to say that, you know, having more time at home has benefited you, you know, in terms of being able to spend more time crafting? Or is it a case of, more time with family gives you less time to write. You know, how has it actually changed your creative process in the last year, year and a half? I mean, I think for me, my heart is probably, so I'm one of those people, I'm, I'm fortunate. Like I, I tend to be like a beat sheet. Sometimes I'll do a treatment and then I go to script, but I normally have a beat sheet or sometimes a page by page breakdown. So I find that once I get to that stage, it's pretty easy, right? I know I've, I've done, a lot of ways I've done the hard work and then it's the, you know, then it's kind of the fun of getting to do the, the, what fun idea comes to you when you're actually writing out the page. So that part has worked pretty smoothly. Like I, when I've got a project and I've got a due date and I've got pages that need to be done, that hasn't been too much of a problem. What I would say is like this summer, the last little while has been kind of like, you know, waiting for book two to get going for the last switch. And, um, you know, I finished writing, I'm, I'm writing another project about, uh, actually, uh, Keith is a musician or a music fan. Uh, so I'm writing about, uh, Fela Kuti who's a legendary African musician, activist. He's like the Bob Marley of Africa. So I wrote all that, but now I'm in that, like giving feedback on the pages. And I'm, what I should be doing now is every day I should be spending a few hours being like, okay, what's the next thing? Like start, start, you know, start writing that spec, spec film that you wanted to do or start doing this. This is the part where I find having family and being at home has been a detriment because there's always so many little things that you could do and I'm I'm great at writing when I got the pages and I've got to turn it out. But when in, in the idea generation stage, even though I'm fortunate, I tend to generate ideas pretty easily. Doing that next thing from aha, funny idea or idea that makes me think to, all right, spend a week and actually see what's there. That part I've struggled at. I, I and I always struggle at that part. But certainly COVID is not COVID has not made me more efficient at sitting my ass down when there isn't a firm deadline and just like 
doing that work. So from that perspective, it's been a little harder, but you know, I'm not going to lie and be like, oh, well, you know, before COVID, like I hit all my deadlines that I did, but you know, I hit all my deadlines and then I had three other side hustles ready. So they, I, you know, I'm, I'm not that guy, you know, that's, that's, that's some Stephen King, Cullen Bunn level <laughs> stuff, you know, like, um, I, I look at Colin Bunn and I'm like, how do you have so many, you know, like there's a few guys, um, oh shoot, the lawyer, I'm trying to, I'm blanking out. There's a lawyer who writes a bunch of Marvel Charles titles. Sewell. Yes. Yeah. Like Charles Sewell. Yeah. There's another person where you're just like, you know, yeah. I'm not mad. I'm just proud. <laughs> I'm so men- I'm so glad you mentioned Colin Bunn there because I do a, a YouTube video for the store every week of what's on my pull list. And pretty much every week, I think I pull out a different Colin Bunn title. And I do think to myself, where does he find the time? You know? But um, yeah, I mean, during that lockdown period, you know, obviously we all did a lot of movie watching, a lot of Netflix watching. Anything stand out for you over that time? Anything that, you know, grabbed you? Oh, man. New movies and stuff. What did this, what did grab me? What grabbed me? I mean, there's a lot of. <sighs> I'm trying to think what I've thought. Well, okay. So from younger titles, I was watching a lot of like Avatar. Dragon Prince, stuff like that with my kids, um, which was also kind of great for Last Witch because there's there, you don't have to squint too hard to see some definite Avatar um, DNA in The Last Witch. Um, staying with the Irish stuff, uh, I watched uh, Wolfwalkers, which I thought was one of the greatest animated films I've seen in like my life. Um, and that studio, you know, they did The Book of Kells and like, you know, I, I've done my thirst tweets a couple of my thirst tweets, adding them, you know, with like when somebody's done a good review of The Last Witch and being like, oh, it could be a good next project. But like, that, like that's like a dream home, right? Is like those folks have such a keen grasp of I think everything that makes Irish mythology sing and they're always beautiful. So like that, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do my thirst trap again. Like that's the, there's the dream, <laughs> there's the dream partner if, if this ever did something else. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I've been watching a lot of TV lately. Um, uh, I've been watching the series Dave. Uh, I was watching um, The White Lotus. Um, I'm trying to think what else I was watching. I was really enjoying The Boys. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can't wait to see, you know, some more of that. I think that's such a smart show. Um, I'm trying to think what else, like, in the in the real, like, comics wheelhouse for, for pop culture. Uh, what else have I, been? I I finally started catching up on Monstrous. I was like way behind on that and Black Hammer. Like those are things that like I bought but never. Yeah. And the other weird thing I'm getting into is uh, IDW does like the re-releases of the European comics. And they've got Corto Maltez, uh, who's like this kind of ne'er-do-well, like James Bond if he was just a total ass. Um, <laughs> and so I've been reading those. They're reprints of Italian comics and they're beautiful. And it's it's just cool to look at that old style of sequential storytelling and like, it's it's so it's it is it does it feels very very different uh than how things are done and i i definitely love watching how especially how how he uses his angles in his books so those are some things that stick to me but i'm sure as soon as we get off i'll be like oh shit and they're like this is the thing that was rocking my world most of all like i'm gonna forget this but absolutely yeah you know i've watched my share of stuff and read my share of stuff during the pandemic but maybe that's related to the lack of output when i'm not exactly writing on a strategy that would be that would be fair you know displacement activity as they say yes but uh, I mean, you're talking about uh, you're talking about the, the reading you've been doing, and you know, although Alan and I would both tend to have a, a higher proportion of indie comics on both of our pull lists than anything else, 
I would profess to come from a Marvel background, where Alan would profess to come from a DC background, and uh, and that very much keeps our our reviews and previews a wee bit more interesting. Would you consider yourself a Marvel guy, a DC guy, or have indie comics always been your bag? I mean, I'm more indie for sure. I'm more indie for sure. But I grew up as a Marvel guy. I grew up as Spider-Man, Alpha Flight, Moon Knight. Um, Although weirdly enough, you know, like everybody's, you know, all comics are supposed to have, you know, these pitches in their back pocket. Weirdly enough, like my all my all of what I would say are my good superhero pitches. It's like I've got one for Wonder Woman that I think is not that I think is kind of interesting. I got a Batman that it would have to be in Elseworlds. It would never let me do it, and it kind of tears down the a lot of the Batman mythology. But I'm really interested in doing that because uh, seriously, I love that. Like I love Batman, but I'm also very much like Bruce. Like get a therapist. <laughs> like, like get a therapist so like i had to, I've, I've come up with my thing about why actually that wouldn't work what there's something else going on but it would have to be elsewhere so it would never be allowed to be canon uh i've got my i've got my superman where i actually i you know and this would work for spider-man i i'm being a journalist i i'm interested in one day writing a story well, one of the things i find interesting right is superman and spider-man they go out and they do this but of course like you know due process like it's super cool that superman saves a day and saves all these lives but like we know for a fact that it doesn't do anything from a legal front because Lex Luthor's there for the next issue. And which makes perfect sense because yeah, right? Like super cool until you get into a courtroom and they're like, none of this shit's admissible. So I'd always thought it'd be really interesting to do like a 1970s paranoid political thriller that either Peter Parker or um, Clark, uh, Clark Kent stumble upon and that they have to do it as themselves because if they really, if this is actually going to happen, if they're actually going to, you know, like one of these bigger corruption things, if it's actually going to work, it can't work with Superman punching down a building because the next set of financiers are just going to step in, build that building and keep doing what's been happening. It has to be done. And I always thought it would be interesting to see them as themselves and having to be handcuffed a little bit. But I also think, again, I'm a biased because I'm a journalist, but I do think journalists have kind of some, in some ways fairly, have been kicked in the face a lot and this whole notion of fake news and it's also like you know i take a step back and i'm like yeah but like who cops the cops right that's what journalists jobs at their best are supposed to do and so it'd be neat to see one of these characters really and it's been done a little bit before it's not a new yeah. idea but i i think there's something that i'd like to do but yeah mostly most of my most of the best ideas i have for dc i don't really have very good except for one for damage control maybe but i don't think anybody's in a real hurry to do that i mean the, that tv show is coming out so that that dance card is full for a while <laughs> so yeah i love marvel i don't seem to have any ideas like if you i told me which which company I had, if i had to walk in tomorrow and shoot them my shitty ideas i would do dc because at least i think they'd be like well at least he had a few shitty ideas where marvel would just kind of me being like well i have this car kid idea but i think it could work for peter parker and uh damage <laughs> control and uh it has been a long time since there has been a damage control comic book series for sure uh but uh geez i think that the last one i saw was late 80s early 90s maybe yeah uh, but uh yeah and, and and whenever you're talking about you know the the fourth estate you know in journalism there was a fantastic uh, Lois Lane twelve issue last yes. year, yes. which uh, which really tackled that, uh, you know, that whole angle of fake news and and uh, I guess weaponized untruth. Yes, uh, it was really really interesting. Um, so that's right. Actually, I forgot. I forgot that it was coming. Out. For some reason, I thought that was longer. I got a COVID pandemic uh, time distortion. So now that's another six years before I can do that. Thanks, Lois. Like. <laughs> Uh, no, but yeah, I, I think, you know, I think there's a, 
Uh, it's funny. I don't know why DC. I think I think for me, I'd be curious for you guys. I think because my friend of mine is a huge DC guy, huge DC guy, and that's like ninety five percent of our arguments are over Marvel and DC stuff. But for me, it was always like DC's characters are all gods, which I found hard to relate to. And for him, like he, he you know, like they are, they are their gods. They, they don't have these the same problems in some of the way. And for him, he's like, well, that's the fun, right? Like Marvel comics get bogged down in like Peter Parker missing the subway. He's like, I missed the subway. Like, I don't, I'm not spending my spare time reading about a guy who also misses the subway. I want to read about a guy who slips out a ring and can freaking do anything. I'm like, yeah, except if it's the color yellow. And he's like, you shut up about that. And anyway, he's, he's on the go. Sounds like a, a smart gentleman we may have to get on at some point, to be honest. Um, I mean, you're saying you're, you've always been more of an indie guy, though. And I think it's fair to say that we're living in a golden era for indie comics again. You know, there's so much variety on the racks and and we uh, certainly in our store we always believe there's a comic for everyone you know if you like a movie we can find you a comic in the same genre that kind of thing and i think at the moment it's almost an expansion of that initial image comics boom or the the golden vertigo period where every book was a hit you know what are some of the indie comics that you enjoyed or you know influenced you in in sort of the last 10 20 years well i, th- I think it's kind of both from both of those sections right like you know transmat was something that I loved, right? I transmetropolitan. So I, I, one thing I actually left out from my bio is that I actually, so I, I, uh, I actually managed a comic, com- a comic store here in Toronto, Silver Snail, which is Legend. arguably the most legendary Canadian comics store, maybe one of the legendary ones worldwide. Uh, I managed it for one day. Uh, <laughs> it was a short but brilliant reign uh, because the guy who ran the store had been bugging me for a while, but like, hey, like, I want, would you just become the manager? And I was like, look, I, this is, I'm not going to be working this comic store forever. Like, this is going to be a stop. He's like, yeah, that's what you said about that. Like, remember that kids' TV show that they did make? And then the one about the rats that <laughs> Pixar did? I'm like, you shut your mouth. Um, and anyway, so as it turned out, I finally was like, fine, Ron, like, I will manage the snail, but like, I can't promise you'll do it for very long. And like literally the next day, I got a call from this journalist organization that was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, because I'd been in there three weeks ago. Yeah, we had a job for you. Can you start Monday kind of thing? And so it was one day. <laughs> but um, I was working there during, you know, so Transmed is coming out, like all of Alan Moore's stuff, like everything that he's doing. So I really, I really loved Transmet, uh, would be one of my favorites. Um, I loved, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking uh, on this right now. I'll come back, come back to it. But I, I think, like, from that time, like, I'm thinking of, like, uh, Hopeless Savages, right? Like, all of a sudden, there's an explosion. There was, like, I'm, I was this nerdy, like, Scott Pilgrim is, like, you know, I'm a Toronto kid who went, I'm a, I'm a twee Toronto kid who went to all the Toronto, like, music spots, right? Like, that comic is, like, that's comic is for me, except I'm crappy at fighting. Um, <laughs> and, like, see, so but, like, that didn't, like, that, didn't seem to exist before. And then, you know, you go back and you read like Contract with God and all of Will Eisner's stuff and you're like, oh, this always was there. Like, you know, you've, and I think sometimes we forget that comics is a medium. Uh, at least, I, I don't think we forget within the comics community, but I think outside there's a, there's a misunderstanding that comics is a medium and that every story can be told beautifully well in comics. And sometimes it involves Captain America punching Hitler in the nose. And like, Nowhere can you do that as well, but in comics, right? That is the that is the ape, you know, the apex medium for Captain America punching somebody in the nose. But comics is also the apex medium for these, like, for memoir, right? Like, you know, everybody has probably has some memoir that, like, you know, I, I just finished the the story of my tits about a woman. It's about I'm trying to remember the name of the creator, and it's all about her battle with breast cancer, right? And like the visuals, right? And what you can do with meta visual metaphor 
is outstanding you know and, and this i'm i'm with you guys like if somebody comes in and is like i don't read comics it's like well what else do you like and here's the comic to go out with you um but if i was going to stick on one transmit really stuck with me um you know it's so audacious it's it's one of the few books that i think it's written by a non-american that looks at american culture and actually really gets it right um i think i, I think it and i don't think all of ellis's stuff does but that one you know, I, I, it's hard. I'm hard pressed to think of a book that worked better, that had, a, that had a complete arc ultimately that it grew into, and that ended at the right time. Um, but there are so many, you know, all the old Frank Miller stuff, and then yeah, nowadays, like you said, I mean, Saga is something that I'm loving. Saga is something that I'm handing to all my friends who've got kids, being like, you should read this comic if you're not a comic reader. Like this is about where you are right now, except in space, and you're married to a war criminal. Uh, funny you should mention it because uh, the the first trade paperback of Saga was the first thing I ever bought whenever I first met Alan in the oh, store. Nice. Uh, I, I was we we talked for that long. Whenever I walked in, I felt like I needed to buy something. Uh, so uh, he handed me the first uh, the first Saga trade paperback, uh, and uh, and I went home with it. And uh, since then, I've we're now we're now waiting for for what comes next. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, right? Like that's what what I love about where the comics industry is today is like if you know every story is possible there are things that i never would have considered pitching as comic stories 10 years ago that now you're like yeah there there's a publisher who does that right like even mm -hmm. this vela cootie book uh i'm working on a project that was just announced i mean working on is a strong term but uh there's a university in the states yeah historical black college and they want to have create the first division one men and women's ice hockey teams and you know when you think of it ice hockey is considered an overwhelmingly white sport and they're going to have a men and women's, and it's going to be historical black college. There'll probably be some white players on it, but it's going to be. And I, for me, you know, I'm a Canadian, so hockey, duh. But like, I'm like, you know, like it's just an interest. Like it's so interesting, like the challenge and who's going to behind that, and like opening the door of a sport that you were told you weren't supposed to play because nobody looks like you is like really interesting to me. And yeah, ten years ago, I never would have been like, oh yeah, that's a comic book. And now I'm like, oh, of course it's a comic book. Like why, why, why can't it be a comic book? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's just really exciting. I, I love the medium so much. I mean, I see that. I see that as well. My my uh, my partner isn't a comic reader, but uh, she she loves Irish mythology. She loves magic and fairies. So, you know, your book was uh, was a perfect entry point. So it's great seeing her picking up comics and suddenly going, actually, this isn't all just superheroes punching each other in the face. Yeah. Uh, I mean. And you know, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it is, you know, I, she liked it until she got to the part where Broad well, yeah. was revealed to me. Yeah, <laughs> until you outed her. I'm not her. Yeah. say that on the podcast. This is be redacted. But. So, who, as a creator, whose who's work would you say has influenced your style as a, I mean, you did mention that, that you know, storytelling comes organically, you know, but whose who's style has, has influenced you as a storyteller? Uh, I mean... That's a good question. I think in some ways, I because I kind of came to the game late, I sort of had to develop a lot of my style in, in other ways. Like I, I have, I think I have a kind of a journalistic style in the sense I tend to write pretty short clip dialogue now that I'm better at it. And that comes from this journalist background. But in terms of people who just like, I love reading their work because it like always excites me and I'm sure it does influence me. Like, I don't know if I would sit there and be like, oh, I do that because of like Jeff Lemire. Although I probably do. I just don't recognize him. So like someone like Jeff Lemire, obviously like his stuff is so imaginative. He's another guy. Well, I really respect the fact that he 
works in so many different genres and like tells so many different types of stories i think that's really 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 uh exciting um i mean <laughs> chip sadarsky like i could never do what chip sadarsky does right like i could never like i'm i don't have that level of cleverness but like he's someone else who you've watched and see how he whipsaws between like horror and comedy um i always love becky clunan's work uh, uh yeah uh, i think becky becky clunan has done so much really really good stuff uh and some of her early like um like small press stuff was like or indie publishing stuff was just some of the it was like the first time i was like this moody beautiful comics and their her stuff is great um space day kind of tilly walden is an indie car indie cartoonist i love she does these super weird she alternates between like super weird literary like sci-fi and then she does this memoir about called spinning which is about her being uh, a figure skater but also coming out at the same time um which is really really good uh boy there's like uh, there's like james tenian is, is doing so much great stuff right now um you guys were mentioning um ram before like there's a big mm -hmm. british and irish group like i just saw will slenny has like a tv show like there's so many cool interesting talents um becky carroll or say emily carroll emily carroll's a really mm -hmm. cool indie artist who does really scary stuff um but she takes like old uh fairy tales and then just turns them into these beautifully illustrated quite creepy comics uh i don't know there's 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 so many you know it's like every time you think like that's again there's so many i think what's you know to ramble for a sec but I think what I, the reason why I think it's so in some ways so harder to pick is because I think what the great things in comics is all these super talented people pretty much get to do the thing they want to do the way they want to do it. And that's probably why I, I slide more to indie books than Marvel and DC is because Marvel and DC does, of course, have there is more of a there's a a greater beast that has to be serviced and they're the tie-ins and you know i mean i i've never worked for on a superhero book um like i said i wrote a batwoman once and it never got used me and anthony did that but then either either they didn't need it or it sucked um but you know like i had just just enough knowledge where like yeah oh you can't use this character or, or people you know they'd wanted to do this and they couldn't or things changed at the last moment and that that's the nature of the beast i don't think that's bad it's just how what happens when you're doing that kind of giant interconnected storytelling on a monthly basis but with the indie stuff like everybody pretty much gets to do what they want because i guess there's just not enough money in comics for someone to sit in there and say we're going to step on your artistic vision you know keith and alan like you can't do it this way and you're like well why would i do it then because like i'm not mm. buying a house out of this book probably so yeah and so i think you get all these talented storytellers and they get to tell stories the way they want and i think when a work is flawed like all works are flawed but i have no problem when the flaws are consistent you know when you're like oh and i think there's lots of work out there and whatever whatever flaws they may have whatever my flaws are i think they're consistent flaws and they're flaws from earnest of trying to tell a story well as opposed to the flaws that come when five other voices get in there and say oh but we got to do this with this or this character can't show up here or i don't know like would enough batman fans like if batman did that like and I, I get it those are all valid questions for batman but I think it's why it's I think it's why it's harder to get a great big two book 
than it is to get a great indie book. I think you get more great indie books every year, and that's partially a numbers game, but I do think you get more great indie books every year than you get great big two. Although the really great big two books, like, you know, Red Sun is something that's, like, those ones those ones last forever because, yeah, you're grafting an amazing story onto a character that everybody knows. Like, that's, you know, that that to me is the that's pinnacle forever. of the art form, is the yeah. people who write an absolutely heart-rending, life-changing book in the superhero world. Like, that's that's amazing. You know, the other books are amazing, too, but that's that's a special talent that... It probably doesn't get celebrated enough. Yeah, I think uh, we're looking at pretty much anything Tom Taylor writes for the big yeah. two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. I think yeah, that's very fair. Absolutely. And I wonder, I mean, there's there's a lot of what you're saying there, Connor, that uh, I think a lot of those things, you know, are are the same things that are maybe driving this current sort of substack, you know, immigration to substack, uh, yeah. you know, those those ownership and those being able to, to take full control, you know, even... You know, it's a lot of what I've, what I've been hearing recently. Um, yeah, have you have you heard anything about that yourself? You know, not as much. I feel like I feel like I'm so not plugged in right now. It's really funny, like in the terms of like, um, you know, mostly I get my. I think so. I started late, right? Like a lot of times when people start in comics, they start more in their twenties, and I didn't start until really much deeper into my thirties. You know, I just had a kid, and so a lot of that plugged in community. I'm plugged in when I'm at a convention. You know, and now like most of the guys I knew, most of the women I know, they have kids now. But now I'm so I I gotta say I am when you want people to know like what's going on in the pulse of comics, I'm like the last guy. I'm the old man like <laughs> looking the wrong way, shouting at the stars is like you know dinosaurs go running behind him in the background, <laughs> right? Like, but I think yeah, I think for sure. I mean, I think you know it's webtoons, it's web you know web comics kind of started this, and you know what the Kickstarter just did 17 million. You know, they just passed 17 million in comics pledges. Uh, we're doing a launch, actually it started today, for something called uh, Trickster, which actually is also an Irish-based comic, funnily enough, um, called Trickster. We're doing it on Zoop, which is a new crowdfunding setup that we thought, hey, let's try this out. And I just think there are so many options now to just go and, and do it however you want. But I think at the end of the day, the it's great to have great editors, which I, you know, I've been always fortunate at IDW, Boom, uh, anywhere I've gone, I've had great editors. It's great to have the marketing and publishing support of someone like a Boomer, an IDW, or a Marvel, or a DC. And, you know, I I, I think most people in this industry have a story they'd want to tell at a big two, you know? And that's because those characters are iconic. There are a few people who legit, like, oh, no, no, I don't have that. But I, whenever somebody says that, they're like, no, 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 I don't, have, I don't care about that stuff. I'm always like, I don't know. Don't you? Don't you have one? Like, you're like, maybe you feel guilty that you have, but like, you know, you scratch far enough, they're like, okay, so I have a Starfire story. It's between, you know, it's in the 1978 run of the Justice League. This, you know, just, you know, this happened, or not Justice League, um, Legion. You know, it happens, you know, and it was happened here. I've always thought about it. I read it when I was six, okay? Like, everybody's got one. Everybody's got one kicking around. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's it's interesting that, you know, when we're talking about your influences and you're able to just rhyme off so many names. I mean, another big mantra at our store is not to follow characters. Like, don't just pick up a book because Batman's on it. Our mantra is follow creators. So, you know, Chip Zdarsky, we always use it as an example. You know, you would never put two and two together that the same guy who drew sex criminals is doing a kick-ass run on Daredevil, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I think from that point of view, I think you should always just follow creators more than anything. 
And it's interesting. I was, I was just wondering, you know, in terms of like current stuff, you say that you're more the old man yelling at crowd who, a cloud, sorry, who's, uh, who's behind on it and so forth. And you mentioned Jeff Lemire. I just recently read Gideon Falls, finally, you know, six years later behind everyone else. I mean, do you tend to keep up to date with any books at all? Is there anything like on a pull list for you or do you just get to books when you when you get a chance? More so the latter now. I mean, like for a while I was really on top of things. It was, you know, when I first worked at the Snail and then after like everything, I was like, <laughs> not for nothing, I had lending privileges at the store, right? Like I worked there for a while, but because I was manager for one day, I got, I got, a, I got the manager's privileges, which meant I got <laughs> lifelong discounts. You must have read so I, much that day. Oh, I, I, and, I, and I got to like, Oh no, but that, like, but from then on, like I could go like, yeah, not, not that I would now because it's been so long, but for, literally for five years later, I would walk into the snail and they'd be like, there was a special list of guys, men and women who've been managers and you were allowed to borrow books for free. Right. Like that was the, that was the rule, right? Like that was part of, you know, it was part of evangelizing and, you know, some of these people went on to do some really interesting things in culture. Uh, and then there was me. Um, and like, and so, you know, but yeah, so I got to write, I got to read so much. Nowadays, I'm definitely farther behind. I mean, because I've got younger children, I'm way more up on like, I guess I'll call it the Reina universe, right? Like, the Reina, you know, books like the, that age, and there's so many really good young adult books. Um, there's a woman named Victoria Jameson who writes, um, I think it's called All's, she wrote Roller Girl, and I want to say the other one's called All's Fair, but it's about a girl who was homeschooled and her family, like, are Ren Fair actors, and then she goes to middle school. Like, all that middle school stuff, I've been reading a ton of it. And, you know, it's, like, all good material that's aimed for kids, right? The stuff that's really good ends up being way more subversive than you realize because adults aren't really looking for it. And any stories about trying to get into high school or middle school, like, stuff goes down right we all remember like those are those are those are active years and so i've been that i'm on pretty on on board with and actually my wife and i are just hopefully the next week or two we'll find out whether a book that we're pitching through my agent about her life going from a very very small northern ontario town moving to basically toronto and how it really kind of wrecked who she thought she was and wow. she had to build herself up for nothing it's called status and she you know she went from being a big fish in a small town a very small fish in a town she didn't understand and you know made some bad choices as a 12 year old around how to try to get status back um so it's loosely based on her life and you know i if you told me you know after kill shakespeare that i was going to do something like the last witch i would have said yeah that makes sense it's kind of kill shakespeare and it's a bit of a younger crowd but then if you said i was going to help my wife write this half memorial for middle book middle books i'd be like what but now of course half half the ideas that I'm turning out in my brain are like, well, this one should be a pretty good middle school. And now I got to do one for my son. He, 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 he says his name is Nacho Man. He's who is a character with an explosive anger who I guess shoots out Nacho Cheese. I'm, I'm not sure where we're going with Nacho Man. I think it's going to be somewhere like, somewhere like Dog Man. I'm not sure. We're working it out. We're workshopping. If people have some ideas, we will take Nacho Man commissions from the, uh, from the audience because okay. Nacho Man has to become a thing or else I get disowned. Okay. All right. Wait. We'll put that out there. That sounds sounds sounds, it sounds something. Yeah, it sounds absolutely. Something. I'm, I've got visions of Red and Stimpy here somewhere. Uh, Nacho Man and Burrito Boy. I think mm -hmm. that's his sidekick, if I remember correctly. <laughs> it sounds more like he's a wrestling fan and he's you know homaging Macho Man Randy Savage to me. I, see, he doesn't know that, but I was like, could Nacho Man talk in weird soliloquies that don't make any sense? I'm like, I think Nacho Man could. Yep, go back and go back and watch those promos. Tons of inspiration oh, for that. Nobody could. I mean, Macho, Macho Man promos didn't make a lick of sense 70% of the time, but boy, they were good. 
You just gotta get up there and I'm gonna get you in there. We're gonna go to the square circle and I'm gonna buy some eggplant to make a freaking scene. Yeah! <laughs> don't, don't get Alan started. This man was up until three or four o'clock in the morning the other morning watching wrestling and uh, just, and just don't get him started. That was my first Macho Man impression. <laughs> Recorded at least. You sound, too, you sound like you've wrecked your voice just doing it. <laughs> oh, and I'm back. Oh, that's a hard man. I that that is a job I do not want to be a Randy Macho Man Savage impersonator. I don't. I don't think there's uh, there's 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 too many openings there to, to worry about. So you'd be okay. You'd be, you'd be okay. surprised. And other than other than the upcoming uh, Nacho Man, are there any upcoming titles that you uh, that you're really looking forward to? Uh, I mean, for so for myself, obviously, you know, we talked about The Last Witch is coming out uh, this week and then next week for our bookshelves. Let me drink some water here. Boy. Um, one sec. How did that man do promos every single night and not lose his voice? <clears throat> I mean, I guess that was just his voice. Um, um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, you know, so, yeah, so stuff that's coming up. So for me personally, there's The Last Witch, which is coming out, you know, this week and next week, September 8th, 14th, depending on comic shops and bookstores. Um, Trickster, which I mentioned, which is kind of like my superhero book. Um, you know, it's a Monster of the Week story. It's about a illusion-wielding leprechaun and... It's, but it goes into the actual mythology. So leprechauns are the children of Lou, the sun god. They're actually tall. They're handsome. And so it kind of has some fun against those stereotypes. But it's like Shaun of the Dead or Army of Darkness. At times, it is very icky and gross. Uh, there is a scene where a character is possessed, and he's a butcher, and he cuts himself into pieces. But at the same token, there's also a lot of very broad humor and goofy jokes. And so it really kind of, if you're someone who has an appetite for you know, for Catskills-style broad humor, and also, oh, that was kind of gross and a little, like, that was a little creepy. It's the book for you. Yeah, so it's called Trickster. It's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, you know, I'm working on this book about Bela Cootie, but other stuff that's coming up from other creators, I'm trying to think what what's most got me excited. I mean, I'm, I'm we were talking about Saga, Saga. You know, that's something that I'm still following. Um this is actually way old, but I stopped reading it for some weird reason. Started rereading it and then realized I'm a couple of trades short. So Morning Glories. Oh, great actually, title. Like that, that's the kind of the lost. Uh, so that's one. That's not new, but that's something I'm very interested in checking out. I'm trying to think. Most of what I see, because I'm a little bit behind. So I'm thinking back, like, um, they call this enemy. Um, why am I blanking on from Star Trek? Um uh sulu uh the name oh, of the it's george takai uh they call yeah, it george takai, yes it's yes. autobiographical yeah really cool things mm -hmm. about that book um and so i'm really interested in checking that down um i'm trying to think what else i mean we talked about charles Sewell, like you know he's got a run on star wars that i haven't been reading but i've been hearing nothing but incredible mm -hmm. things i'm a star wars fan and you know, my kids are now getting into Star Wars, so this is kind of a good excuse to kind of start bringing them Star Wars comics because that's, you know, that's another thing I think about licensed properties that sometimes gets uh, dismissed is that they're still really the best way to bring younger readers into that world of comics in so many ways. I mean, I know there are things that are dedicated just to younger readers, but in terms of, like, the action of the adventure and introducing them to a quote-unquote adult story... You know, you can you can hand a Star Wars or a Superman comic generally to a kid, and you're going to be okay. Not all the time. You know, I know there's been some discussion about that, but I do think that that's uh, a big thing. 
uh, are an important thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I'd have to I'd have to really do some do some thinking. You guys were mentioning Al Ewing. I know he's got uh, he just did Gamma Flight this past year, which I, I actually have to ask you. How was that? Is it good? Yeah, I mean, it's it spun out of uh, the Immortal Hulk, which yeah. was a phenomenal uh, phenomenal run. It's coming to an end in October. Uh, issue with, 50. With issue 50. So uh, I'm really, I've been following that right the way through. But yeah, Gamma Flight span out of that. And uh, I mean, I was always a fan of, of Alpha Flight, you know, yes. uh, back in the day. Um, John Byrne stuff and, and uh, you know, Shaman and Snowbird and Guardian and Vindicator and... Uh, the the thing that links, I think, Gamma Flight to Alpha Flight is the inclusion of Puck, uh, yes. who's yes, always yes. been a really interesting character with an interesting, you know, interesting background. So, yeah, I mean, it's I think now I am I am given the the month I've had, I am very far behind in my reading, Connor, very far behind. In fact, I haven't picked up last week's pull list yet, and this week's pull list is out tomorrow. So I'm in I'm in trouble. I'm drowning. I'm drowning. But <laughs> but. Uh, I read the second, I think the second or third issue of Gamma Flight, and I'm really enjoying it, really enjoying it. Uh, okay. So, yeah, worth that. Yeah, I've worth seen that, and I, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, that's got to that's be Alpha Flight, and then I kind of just forgot about it. But, yeah, same thing, being a Canadian, you know, when you were a Canadian kid, like, Alpha Flight was, we don't, that was that was us. We got mm -hmm. reflected in it. So, who, you know, Byrne got it, right? Like, yeah. he, he actually, you know, not that there's a huge cultural difference, but there is a bit of one. Um and then the, and I guess Excalibur that would be the other one from that area. Yeah. Different, you know that that was one where you know I'm not obviously a Brit, but I was like, oh, like that feels, you know, it feels felt real. So yeah, yeah. yeah there's so much stuff there, and I'm sure there's so many things. Again, as soon as we get all, I'll be like, oh yeah, that there, you know, I've got this that I've been asking to bring brought in. Um, but yeah, there's no shortage, man. Like there's so much good stuff. Yeah, definitely no shortage. Yeah, it's both the joy and the uh, the the harshness of the industry and that. Similar to Keith, I was behind in my reading, but that didn't stop me picking up 27 issues of Gideon Falls to read when I should have been reading my up-to-date current stuff. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's just so much good stuff. It's both a joy and a curse sometimes. It's, it, it always entertains me when we get new customers into the store and they say, so where should I start? Just rubbing your hands, thinking, so 80 years worth of titles. Let's, let's, let's see where <laughs> let's we're going go. here. But um, I just wanted to touch very quickly just on your on your process, if that's all right. Yeah. You know, obviously, you know, in, in terms of writing, everybody's different. You know, when it comes to my own personal, if, if I'm going to write, I'm a night owl. I, I do it at 12 at midnight. The world is quiet. Twitter is not a distraction. You know, you can actually get on with things. I mean, do you have a set process for writing? Is it a strict nine to five kind of thing? Is it a do it late at night or is it just whenever inspiration takes hold? Uh, well, it's definitely not the latter. There's, if there's one advice I would give to writers out there, it's like that, that's, <laughs> that's definitely the one way that doesn't work, you know, not long term, right? If you're waiting till you feel like you want to write, <laughs> you've been waiting a long time sometimes, um, <laughs> you know, so I, I don't write late at night. I mean, cause you know, I've got young children and stuff. So I, I get up early I, the, and I'm fortunate now that I'm kind of able to, I, do take some other gigs, but it's all kind of in that freelance world. So I don't, I'm fortunate where I, I don't have a nine to five uh, at this juncture, you know, so hopefully knock on wood, uh, buy the last witch so I don't have to get one. Um, <laughs> but I, I, for me, it's what I try to do is I try to get, I'm a page count guy. So I'm like, I'm like, I need to get X number of pages written today. And if that takes me an hour and a half, cool. That takes me nine hours, less cool, but okay, right? So I'm like, you gotta get the page count 
in. And when I do write, I tend to write a little early. I, I tend to probably be most productive, uh, like 10 till like 1230 or so. But if I'm really going, like on days where I'm really going and I blow past my page count, you know, I'll write from 10 till 4 without getting up because I'm just in that groove. <laughs> I wish that was every day. Um, my biggest problem, though, I think for like a lot of writers is, you know, you sit down and then, yeah, making sure that the thing you do is writing, not preparing to write, not plotting out some more stuff in your head, which are still useful, but it's not writing. Um, or worse, like you said, Alan, like, oh, there's Twitter calling me, or oh, I haven't I haven't read the news today. I mean, that's, I, I, as a writer, I need to know what's going on in the world, right? Like, that's, that's important, TMZ, no. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I try to be a little consistent. When I am writing, like when I'm in the middle of a project, it's I'm pretty good. I, I'll give myself credit. I'm pretty good. But as I was saying to you guys, when I'm in the between product projects, when you know when there isn't a specific thing that has to be done at this point right now, that's where I could probably use more structure. I definitely have learned that about myself. And I think in general for writers, as much as it seems the opposite of creativity, being structured is really whatever structure you have you've got to have some sort of structure and some writers are like structured up the wazoo and some writers are very loose but they know they're going to sit from 10 till 2 or something and they don't care what gets done there but they're going to sit but i think you need to have something i really do um and what about connor as a writer of comics your relationship with with the artist how does that process work you know, with I mean, we shattered your... each other until no. Uh, it's funny actually. So the first person we first person Anthony and I wrote with. So the short answer is, um, whenever possible, I like to be able to work with an artist who has an interest in writing and storytelling because I think you get stronger work because they ask better questions of your scripts um, because they've got their writing brain on. Um, so I think that's always strongest. I think you all, to me, you, all, you always want to give an artist an opportunity to do something different than was suggested on the page because they're the experts at that. Um, if nothing else, it's going to lead to a conversation, which for you as a writer strengthens your conviction on why you did want something done a certain way. Like you're like, yeah, actually, yeah, actually this is, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, right, but let's change the next two panels. You know, and I've had a lot of conversations with artists where you're like, no, like, I don't want that change, but this is really why. And then you start talking, you're like, oh, well, the rest of this page should change, right? Like, that is a good idea. And you're right to it. You know, Connor, you're right that you wanted to do it that way. But now we could do the rest of it this way. And you're like, yeah, yeah, we could. Like, um, but my favorite story for that. So when we first worked on Phil Shakespeare, we were working with Andy Belanger, who's great. I, if, you never, if you've never had Andy Belanger on, he is well worth your time. He is a, he's a wrestler now in Montreal, Canada. He's, you know, drawn for heavy metal. He's done image stuff. Like, Andy's done a lot of stuff. He's great. And he's a, he is a inter interesting, entertaining human being. <laughs> so, Kill Shakespeare was Andy's first series. And it was me and Anthony's first writing. And so, in, in the first issue, there is a thing, probably about 12-something pages in the book, where in the play, Shakespeare, in the play Hamlet, Hamlet gets on this boat, you know, and this boat's supposed to take him to England. And he's, there's this letter that's going to get him killed when he gets there. And in the play, this pirate attack happens, and that's why Hamlet gets back home, because it's pirate Uber, I guess. And, you know, the play goes on. So this was the big moment where Hamlet confronts these two other characters, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, about how he knows they have this letter, right? And 
Rosencrantz and Guildenstern have this conversation with him about how they had been, until that moment, they had been like, what are we going to do? Are we really going to screw over our best friend or what? And they talk about this idea of how you have to let go and the, the, the paper is meant to be thrown into the water. And it's really important in the context of Kill Shakespeare because Hamlet's whole journey is going to be about how to know to let go. Because the, the MacGuffin in Kill Shakespeare is he's told that if he does this thing, if he tracks down and kills this evil wizard, William Shakespeare, it's what Richard III and Lady Macbeth are asking you to do. If you do that, you'll get your father back from the dead. And so it was this big moment. And so I had written it with like lots of like close-up shots, emotion, you know, like cutaways, like very kind of arty indie comic. And he hated it. Hated. He's like, I'm not writing it, dude. I'm not drawing this, dude. It's boring. I'm like, what do you mean it's boring? He's like, it's boring, dude. It's boring. It's a bunch of people looking at each other with sad, sad eyes. Like, it's boring. You know, like, what, what, what is this, like, a emo comic? Like, no, not doing it. And I was like, yeah, but Andy is, like, the most important. These are really important shots. It's important that we get this. He's like, no, nah, not doing it. And so Anthony, I'd written the first issue. Anthony kind of comes in. You know, he wants to have my back. But also, he's sitting there being like, so we start Kill Shakespeare in a flash forward. Then we do a weird kind of recap of the play that's not in any particular time and place. Then we do meet Hamlet in the here and now of our story, but he immediately meets a witch and there's a weird trippy magic scene. And now we're on this boat and Andy was like, I want to do a visual montage. I said, yeah, well, Andy, what's your idea? Visual montage, bro. I got a visual montage. Don't worry about it. Like, would you like to tell me about this visual, visual montage? Nah, bro, you'll, you'll love it when you see it. <laughs> okay. Um, so Anthony's like, we can't do that. We can't like, go, you know, we, we got to be in the real place. Like we got to be on this boat and it's got to feel real. And I can't have visual montage. Cause like all we've done is like weird art tricks to this point. Like we got to do some storytelling. <laughs> and so things start getting heated and Andy's like, I'm not going to do it. He's like, if you make me do this, I'm going to take all five pages of the scene. I'm going to make it one page. That's what I'll draw you. I'll draw you one page. And so I'm like, oh, well, that's not going to work. And so I'm sitting there being like, okay, so here it is, Connor. This is the five most important pages of the script as far as you're concerned and it just so happens that they're the five pages your artist is most excited to go out and do something different with is this a collaboration or isn't it so i was like all right andy i was like do the visual montage i said but if you do it and i legit don't like it then like you have to be willing to try it my way and then we'll see how it goes right like would you and he was like oh you're gonna love it bro don't worry and so he did. He did this thing. And it's got Hamlet's father's tomb is coming out of the water and it crumbles. And this like lady in the lake sword is coming out. And the 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 way the 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 you know the letter kind of falls in and melts apart. Like it's it's really cool. I never in a million years would have ever thought to script that. But that's what Andy was feeling. He drew it. And I remember we got this first one of the very first reviews we get. And somebody's talking about, like, this kills Shakespeare book. It crosses the line between genius and stupidity so many times that I, like, I don't know if I don't get it or they don't get it, right? <laughs> like, I'm not sure which it is. But he's like, there's this one sequence <laughs> where Hamlet's on the boat. And, like, and, you know, and you can tell, like, it, you know, the writers poured their heart into it. And the artist was, like, was going to take this great scene and was going to make it into something. And this moment is genius. This moment is genius. Mark that one in the genius column, which I think is the quote we use for the entire book. Like they said, the entire issue was marked this in the genius column, the, the, the wonder of ellipses. Uh, and so anyways, we get the review, and every time we would have an argument with Andy about art after that, every single time, he would just lean back and go, trust me, bro, I'm a genius. <laughs> and yeah, and, and, that's, and that taught me a very valuable lesson that like it's kind of like kill your darlings, that sometimes that moment that you think can't be done any other way 
is going to be the moment that the artist is like, I've got an idea and let them let them do their idea because that's what they're good at. Right. Like that's what they're great at. And so, yeah, I, I think in general, I, you know, I write the script, I send it over. I ask for lots of feedback. I get what I get on that stage. And then, you know, I like to go through each page. I am definitely like I go like going through. We talk about it because I, I think there's opportunities for me, even though I can't draw. There is opportunities where I'm like, oh, but what if? And I would say half the time the artist is like, yeah, that's not a bad idea. And half the time they're like, no, it's not going to work for whatever reason. But yeah, I like to really get in. I just think it makes the relationship better. I don't think anybody likes being dictated to. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, we're both storytellers, right? And so if we're not working together with our storytelling skills. And that, that extends to the colorist, that extends to the letterer, right? The more people who love storytelling, who are involved in making comics, who can get in there and just talk about it, right? Like I think at the end of the day as a writer, and the artist, I still feel like the writer and the, the pencil and inkist, like those are the two people who have to make the final calls. Like you have to have that responsibility to be like, this is the way we're going. But yeah, you know, it's really rare I've found in my career where you don't can't come to a pretty quick consensus or generally come up with an even better idea in the moment and be like, oh yeah, this is <laughs> that was both of our ideas were so crappy. This is the idea. You know, and then the review comes in. They're like, well, that was the moment that was the least crappy. So I guess this was the, you know, mark this moment in the genius column. There we go. I one suppose, star review. Mark this one in the genius column. I suppose it's always that opposition between, you know, artist and writer in comics. You know, it, there's there's like very famous stories of, you know, Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo working together and Greg Capullo said, took you 30 seconds to write this. It takes me five days to draw it. So I suppose with an artist, it, it, it's always going to be a focus on one project at a time. But certainly yeah. from different writers we've chatted to, you know, they can sort of juggle multiple projects. I mean, do you prefer to keep focus on one project at a time? Or are you quite proficient in juggling multiple titles at any one time? I mean, I, I'll say this has been biased by the fact that I have been hired enough things to have to often jump you know i would love to see whether i love juggling multi multiple projects at the same time you know anybody who's got a gig that wants to see if i can do it i mean um, <laughs> but i have it a few times like so most recently i was working on last witch and fela uh and this trickster book at the same time um so that that was actually the most where i've been really juggling and you know there's always a couple other side hustles but i ended up enjoying it because like fela is like this very like for people who don't know the guy i mean he is like i said he's the bob marley of africa like he had 37 wives he was like he he's like the marijuana god you know he like was arrested 200 times he's an asshole he's a genius he i've never used the word motherfucker so many times in a script like the guy was profane as hell but he was so wise and like that's a real fun vibe to get into but yeah, sometimes you get hit and you're like, oh, now there's this big, big moment. Like, how do we handle like the moment when his like mom gets like his mom, who, by the way, not for nothing, helped negotiate Nigeria's freedom from independence, sorry, from UK. The Nigerian military threw her out of a second floor window when she was like 80 because like she was his mom, even though like she was legit there in London helping to negotiate. Like, so, you know, you get to that moment, you're like, oh, boy, this is heavy. And so then it's kind of nice to be able to turn around and be like, oh, yeah, I've got this like weird trickster book where like, you know, I'm 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 trying to figure out like what's the grossest way for a slug that has possessed somebody to come out like, you know, is ass or mouth better? Like, let's have an ass mouth conversation. Like, let's just go through this. Like, let's let's really like think this down. Could be an ear. Like, let's not overlook the ear. That's a good orifice as well. Like, let's, you know, so it's nice to have that. And then, yeah, sometimes with Last Witch, it was fun to just dive in there with Sersha. 
and Brom and to be like, Saoirse is kind of a little bit meant to be a bit like my daughter. Brom is meant to be a little bit like my eldest son, you know, like, or like, how do I craft something that feels like that classic avatar or Saturday morning? Like, what's the best thing that would have me as a kid, I would have been excited. Like, you know, like there's this, you know, in the second issue, there's the, one of my things I love about the book the most is when you finally meet a witch. You know, the first book is a lot of setup. Second issue starts moving. And there's this witch you meet and she, the teeth in her mouth. Like the, I said, the, I like, all I, all I wrote was like, she smiles. And all it says is those teeth is always the only description in the script. And what she did, I was like, oh yeah, those are some those teeth. And like, you know, that just makes you like, it just makes you so happy, you know, when you see it and you're like, oh, that's, I, you know, that's why I'm so glad there are great artists out there because, you know, it just makes you really happy. So yeah, it is fun to go back and forth. I think it, it probably keeps me, me personally, I think it keeps me more fresh because it gives me something else to put my creative brain into. And I'm sure, you know, you know, listeners have heard this and, and you guys have had this in your creative endeavors, you know, you work on one thing and then an idea that solves a problem for something else comes in. Uh, and so that's great. You know, that's great. You know, I love it. You have that moment, you write down something and now you're excited to, you know, you're almost flying through these pages cause you want to get to that thing. So yeah, I love it. I'd love it more. Like I said, hire me for more things. I'd be happy to be overloaded. <laughs> Well, taking a minute just to focus on, we've spoken a wee bit about Kill Shakespeare, but taking a minute just to just to focus on it. Uh, did you feel a certain pressure working with very much pre-established characters as opposed to your own creations? I mean, no, because it was like the first thing we did. I think maybe if I'd done some other stuff and then it was like, you know, the last witch creator, you know, Hey, the last witch was this really great book and we loved it. Now he's taking on Shakespeare. Like, I think there may have been like, there probably would have been more, uh, pressure. Right. Cause like, you know, I'm very proud of the last witch. I think it's a great book. You know, I think people would be like, yeah, that's a, that's a well-told story. Wow. This guy's taking on Shakespeare. Like, you know, what's, what are him and this, you know, Anthony Delcon guy going to do, but it was our first book. Right. So nobody knew nothing about it. It's a weird idea. This, Shakespeare, all the care, you know, it's, it's League of Extraordinary gentlemen for sure, but it seems weirder because it's Shakespeare, and Shakespeare's always got this, like, weird barrier. Honestly, I think Anthony and I were too naive to recognize how much pressure we should have felt. Like, it's not only our, you know, this is, you know, it's not like Kill Shakespeare is us telling Hamlet in the future, which is, by the way, hard enough to do properly. It was us being like, sure, these Shakespeare stories are pretty good, but... Hamlet, Shakespeare made a bunch of mistakes. He killed a bunch of characters he shouldn't have. <laughs> we're going to just keep them going. We're going to make radical changes sometimes to who they are because, like, we're just that good. But, like, and honestly, I think if we thought about it, I think we would have overthought it. We would have tried to... We just, like, we just kind of went with our first instincts on all these characters. And, you know, like, I... Kill Shakespeare's a weird book, man. I mean, the first two books, I definitely think, especially in the first book, the first few issues, you can really see us... Well, I'll say myself. I don't want to speak for Anthony getting like our stride like i think the first few issues are overwritten compared to what comes later i don't think they're horrifically overwritten but like i think if you watch it you definitely see the book gets more we get more confident um but yeah man like i look back kill shakespeare's a weird little stretch right like book three of that series is one of my favorites it does some really weird stuff anthony does this really cool one issue is actually mirrored if you look at it didn't go exactly perfectly but the first page and the last page are mirrored panel-wise, and then the second page and the second last page all the way through to the middle, which is a double page completely obviously mirrored spread. 
So he designed it to be mirrored back to front. Okay. There's some weird stuff that happens with Prospero and Shakespeare. Like it's a, it's just a weird book that I'm really proud of. And I think if I'd done other stuff before, or if Anthony and I had done other stuff before, I don't know if we would have given ourselves the same freedom. I think we would have felt more pressure. Um, I, you know, I hope, knock on wood. I mean, I, I, I try to approach every project. I never think about what I wrote before, and I try to never think about what I'm writing, like Fela Kuti being a good example. The guy is a, he is a hero to millions and millions of people. He is certainly a icon in terms of like, some of the Black Lives Matter struggles that we're talking about, right, in terms of being one of the first guys who took on power um, and spoke truth to it. Um, so from that perspective, you know, I'm, I'm working the artist, uh, Jabula Fagbamie, who's also the co-writer, uh, co really, of the book, let's let's be honest. Um, you know, he was born in Nigeria. He was raised there. Like, you know, we're coming from a place of knowledge. But at the same token, you take a step back and you're like, yeah, you're like, buddy, who's doing this? said because he loves your writing he wants you to come on and write this book that's why i'm doing it right he believes in me but it, you don't have to take too many steps back to be like but how are some other people going to think about the white canadian being on this book right like and i think if you spend too much time thinking about that stuff like you you know you have to think about it in that context and be like should i do this and you know our discussion was hey fellow is a historical figure everything we're writing about is researched you know we're not inventing like at one point, somebody said, hey, what if you did that book, but you did it with a younger protagonist and you just used Fela? He ran this very cool commune where all sorts of crazy stuff happened. And you used the commune as the as the connective tissues, and you could tell a story about this young Nigerian boy, what it was like to be Nigerian at that time. And it, that way it could be like an all-ages book, and we could, you know, because we can't tell Fela's story because he's he's too adult. Mm. And it was a great idea. But, like, Jabola and I were both like, no, man, that's like that's not for us to do together. Maybe for you, it's because like, I'm not going to sit there and be like, here, let me write about what it was like to be a young Nigerian boy in 1970s. Now, I can write about Fela and what it was like to be in Nigeria at that time because I can research that. And, But again, yeah, you think about stuff too hard and you probably talk yourself out of some really interesting opportunities. But if you don't ask a couple of questions, you know, I think this is where you learn, where you start stumbling into some stuff and you think, shit, I probably should have thought about this before, like, this is one maybe I should have thought about because this, as it turned out, was an incredibly stupid idea. Like, you know, why did I say that? Like, I, you know, but thankfully, knock on wood, you know, well, maybe we'll talk in a year and a half when Fela's out and, you know, we can do a, a music retrospective and get, you know, get just enough fair license for his music in the background. And you can tell me whether this was a, whether it ended up being a stupid idea or not. But... We look forward to it. <laughs> I mean, one of the interesting things about Kills Shakespeare is that, you know, you've got characters interacting who's, Stories take place in some cases hundreds of years apart in the original novels. How I was coming up with a solution to have them all in the same sort of time and space? That sounds pretty challenging. Oh no, not at all. Honestly, no. We just decided medievally. <laughs> like honestly, like if you ask the average person, that like, sounds like your elastic between... time thing, Keith, with yeah, Marvel. You yeah, know, like if you ask the average person, what was the difference between twelve fifty and fifteen fifty? nobody knows unless you're an actual scholar of that stuff like you don't know when what technology was invented you're like well they all had swords and crossbows right and like like so we just said if anything felt like it felt like classic european medieval that that was fine we didn't have to get into the minutia of like yes juliet is 300 years juliet roman juliet is set 300 years after king john 400 years actually uh almost where we did set rules and we said all right so julius caesar Cleopatra, these are characters that are historical figures that we know 
don't coincide with Richard III. Now, most people have no idea that Richard III and King John you know, are even farther apart. Well, they're not, but it's still 400 years, right? So that was our rule. So Cleopatra and Caesar are the history of the Kill Shakespeare world. So they existed. Their lives were just previous. We actually have a backup story in the very first issue that shows how the dagger that Hamlet has been given by Lady Macbeth, which he is to use to kill to Shakespeare because it is apparently the weapon that can do it, is also the same dagger that Brutus uses to stab Julius Caesar on the steps of the Senate. And so we connect the dagger. And then we show that it was also a murder weapon in two or three other famous Shakespearean plays. But they're kind of deep cuts. Like, one of them is just somebody being shoved off a wall. You have to really be a Shakespeare nerd to be like, oh, yeah, that's how, like, King John ends with somebody being shoved off a super tall wall. Like, you know, and it doesn't really matter. Honestly, that's, you know, with the thing like Kill Shakespeare, and even I would say something like The Last Witch. Like, I think if you know your, your Celtic mythology, there's a lot of stuff that is satisfying. You know, you know, Keith, you're talking about you know, your partner and her recognizing the, 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 the entomology of the name. And that stuff is great and satisfying. And, and I think people who get that stuff hopefully enjoy the book in a unique way. But by the same token, I've always tried to write with any of these things. It doesn't really matter if you know the reference. If I've done my job as a writer, you'll understand the reference. Um, and so, yeah, like we've always tried to keep it. So, yeah, for Shakespeare, it was like medievally, make it easy and then put a few Easter eggs in so that somebody who really knows their stuff is like, oh, okay, yes, okay, they're acknowledging that there's a huge time gap. Um, and sometimes they find Easter eggs we don't put in there. So many times people came up and were like, it was so smart how you had Falstaff like run from a brothel, you know, and then change into a uh, drag because of course in his play, you know, this play, he wasn't drag, but then he ran into a brothel. And I'm like, yes, yes, it was very interesting <laughs> how we flipped that, wasn't it? <laughs> There's, uh, I'm actually, I'm just reading uh, Aftershock of a book out at the minute called Seven Swords, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a swashbuckly book, and I think they've embraced something very similar, you know, they've, they, where you've gone medievally, they've gone uh, historical swashbuckly, so they've managed to put the, uh, you know, the Musketeers together with Kirana de Bergerac, together with Casanova, yeah, and you're like, mm, don't know about that, but sure, it works, it works. Yeah, Thema right, like thematically. Your time frame is your time frame, right? Like, you know, if you, you want history, read a history, you know? Like, you want swashbuckling action, don't argue to me when Cyrano de Bergerac was running around. Actually, I'm going to read that, but that sounds a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a couple of issues in it. Is, it is very good fun, and they have they have these profiles of the different characters at the back, and it really is one of those, uh, you know, get get the band together sort of, sort of books, and uh, I think they're all up against uh, Count Richelieu. Uh, oh, who nice. is uh, who is who is dabbling in the supernatural in a very sort of Indiana Jones sort of a way, uh, so it's it's very interesting. But um, and, and, and an all time real life asshole. So so I hear so I hear. So with with Kill Shakespeare, was it an idea that you always had for a comic, or given its um, literary roots and stylings, was there ever a consideration of, of prose in there? Uh no, not really. I think I mean. I'm just now at the stage in my career where I've been kind of like, oh, maybe I'll try prose, right? I think I've always had a bit of a break for that. Actually, Anthony, a couple of times I've been like, oh, you should try prose. But no, I mean, we were looking for something comics. I mean, for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons we wanted to do something with comics is because it was something we felt we could do in the sense of like, you know, we could afford to raise some money and hire an artist so that we could own the idea, right? Because that was really important to us because we were like, we wanted to own this idea once we came up with it. We're like, hey, if it, if it breaks right, 
you know, you know, in a world where people have Frodo lives buttons, and so, you know, you look at Lord of the Rings. To me, it was a great example of like Frodo lives buttons in the '70s and '80s. And Lord of the Rings always had a fan base, but it wasn't a touchstone of pop culture. And then the movies come out, and all of a sudden, this huge fan base pops up. And we were like, there are so many people who've seen a Shakespearean play, and they may have loathed it, but they had a reaction. And if you did it right, they could be like, oh yeah, I freaking hated Shakespeare. But this looks fun, and I know who two of those characters are, so I'm in. So it was really important for us to own it. And so that was one of the reasons we looked at comics. And I'd, I'd had the background working at the Silver Snail. You know, I felt I understood the medium pretty well. Uh, Anthony hadn't actually been really introduced to the medium very much, and so I was bringing him books from the Silver Snail and loaning them to him to read. And so he he just became entranced with, like, how you could do anything. You know, like, you could do anything in comics. And so, yeah, that's it, it was really always comics because we thought that was something we could do. And because, you know, theater is visual, comics are visual. Um, Shakespeare, obviously, is, you know, the written word matters. And so we thought comics had that perfect marriage of having these lush, wonderful visuals that, you know, <laughs> that was just the artist's problem to have to have figure, you know, that's Andy's problem to figure out how to have to draw that, you know, draw a few more horses, Andy. Um, but also gave us a chance to play and to try to have some fun, you know, we do kind of Shakespeare light speak. I like to say we're kind of like, um, we're Thor, really. I feel like Kill Shakespeare is kind of Thory in terms of our these and thous. We try to be, you know, we had a couple of actual scholars who would check in and be like, no, that's incorrect. But, <laughs> um, you know, we were never really going to worry too much about that. And yeah, you know, comics just seem, it just seemed fun. Comics are fun. Yeah, I don't think Stan ever checked in on his these and those with a with a scholar. No, uh, no, so, uh, probably not. And more power much. to him. <laughs> I mean, you'd mentioned theatre there. How was adapting the work into other mediums? I believe there was a play and yep. and even a board game as well. Yeah, no, we, we did it. We did a stage play. I toured around North America. I was just in New Orleans, actually, before COVID hit. It was really cool. We got to work with uh, the Globe Theatre uh, in the UK on it. We got to work with... Um, uh, a couple of theater companies, the Young Performing Center, Young Center for Performing Arts, uh, and a place called Soul Pepper here in Toronto, which are considered two of the top Shakespearean theaters in the country, uh, as well as uh, Stratford Festival, where we've been able to do some work with them as well. It was really cool. It was scary, man. Like I'd never written a play, and all of a sudden you got like these like legit scholars, and at first they're kind of like, "Ha ha, you have this comic book," and you're like, "You haven't even read this, have you?" But there'd always be one person who'd read it and was like, oh, this is so good. I love how you did this. Uh, and yeah, it was it was scary writing a play. I, it, I think it's only okay, honestly. I think it's a lot of fun. It's definitely worth seeing. Um, but I learned a lot about it. But yeah, that was kind of that was a little scary because you're going into Shakespeare's medium and you're definitely meeting a different audience in terms of people who may not be as... But everybody's always been nice. At worst, you get at somebody who's just like, they think it's a bit of a goof. And you're like, no, we we actually think it's serious work. Like, it's fun, but we do think it's serious work. But that's fine. Uh, and then, yeah, the board game was super fun. IDW was starting a board game division. They had an idea for, they had, the, they had the game designers, and the game designers wanted to do a historical game. And they were like, we know what IP we have access to. That would be really cool for that. And, yeah, and they built, like, the Kill Shakespeare board game is a semi-co-op. It is a game player's game. Like, if you are a group of gamers who are like, Saturday night, we get here at four, we leave at nine. We may play one game, or we may play five games. Kill Shakespeare is like, you play for four or five hours. It is a semi-co-op. It is so elegant. It is a beautifully, elegantly designed game 
with unfortunately a kind of craptastic rule book. Although if you go to our website, you can find updated rules that we redid to make it a little more clear and a better playthrough. But yeah, if you're a group of people who want to sit down and do a semi-co-op that is, uh, you know, we a couple of people were like, this is pretty much the best semi-co-op we've played. And the designers, a couple of Dutch guys who did a game called Diedo earlier, are uh, Thomas and why am I blanking the other gentleman's name? But it, it's a really cool game. It's a very cool game. Yeah, it's really interesting. That's That sort of describes myself and my brother when we get together so oh, nice. uh i've got uh, the firefly board game and uh arkham horror sitting here so that okay could, okay that could join it quite well yeah it is it's you know again for for those listening it is definitely it's the it's one of those games like the first turn takes you like an hour and a bit and the second turn takes you like 45 minutes but then once you get the rhythm of the game by the time you get to the last turn you're doing like 20 minutes because you just used to and then the next time you play it it goes from being like a four-hour game the first time to probably two, two and a half after that. Because once you get the rhythm, and once you, like, it's also one of those kind of fun games where you're sitting there being like, why would I ever want to do that? Like, why is that an option? And then you play and you're like, oh, because of, oh, that's why. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. Huh. There you are. Yeah, I hadn't even realized there was a board game until Alan yeah. uh, until Alan started uh, talking about it. So that's that, that's that's good news. Clearly, good one news. of you does your research. <laughs> we take turns. We take turns. No, one of them. One <laughs> of them is the guy who day by day runs the store. The other guy lollygags across Europe, listening to tw electric twangers. <laughs> that's the one. That's the one. So, do you have a do you have a favorite work of Shakespeare? Uh, when I started it, it would have been The Tempest. And by the time I finished Kill Shakespeare, it's Othello. Uh, and Othello just because, A, Iago is like such an amazing villain. Um, like really one of the great villains of all time. Uh, and I love talking, when I talk to kids about Shakespeare, I, I, I make a parallel about having the worst day of your life where like your teacher says you're, you've been cheating and your boyfriend or girlfriend says they saw you kissing, says they were told you were kissing someone else. And you go home and your parents have found some sort of contraband in your room. And you call your best friend and you're like, I don't know how this is happening. What is going on with my life? Like, this is so crazy. And then your best friend's like, oh yeah, I did that. I, I'm the one who I'm the one who told the teacher you were cheating. I'm the one who set it up so it looked like uh, you were kissing someone else. And I'm the one who snuck those cigarettes in your room for your parents to find. And you're like, why? Like, why? You're my best friend in the world. Like, why would you do that? And they just smile and they look at you and they say, you're not even worth telling. And they hang up the phone, right? And like, Great eights are like, right? So like such a great villain. Um, and just Othello is such a great character. And I think also like, honestly, the kind of the discussions we've been having in the bigger culture, you know, you get this, I have a different look at a guy like Othello. Like it's, I'm much more aware of like, yeah, he's like the only black dude in the play. And he's this super strong, super intelligent. Like he's a leader, he's a general leader of men. And he's kind of undone because he finds it hard to believe that a young white woman could really love him. Because somewhere, all the bullshit racism, which he gets from all corners in that play, has internalized and, like, kind of eaten at his soul. And, like, he's his own worst enemy because he makes all these choices and he listens to Iago and, you know, it's... A, but, like, you take a step back and you're like, oh, shit. Like, it's... it's Shakespeare is writing about the corrosive effects of racism on really good people. Hundreds of years before we're talking about it now. And certainly in a time where I would suspect that a large portion of his audience 
didn't was probably the first time they'd seen a character like Othello and thought about him as an actual human being, you know? And so that's, I think when I think about that, but I just like to think of like the humanism you'd have, you have to be able to do something like that so elegantly. And he, he does it in all his work, you know, Shylock, like Shakespeare does such a great job, I think of humanizing all his characters, like all, you know, which is what any good writer should do. But, you know, I think this is why we study Shakespeare so many hundred years, because it's just so consistently done at such a high level. Um, and so, yeah, Othello just it always makes me kind of like, it makes me sad, right? It just makes you be like, shit, like, wow and the world sucks like and then there's you get a play like um Cymbeline which is a play like nobody ever watches and I'd never seen it I don't think knew it was a title I was like I don't have to read Cymbeline there's no characters in it we want to borrow uh I'm gonna leave this on the side and then we went <laughs> to see it and Cymbeline is this like batshit crazy play where like every Shakespearean trope gets stuffed into this like five act like mistaken identity fake deaths a, a, a proto Iago character called Yakimo who basically does the same stuff, you know, lost daughter of a king, wizards, offstage deaths, poisons <laughs> that don't work. Like it's like literally every idea he had is just like beta tested in Cymbeline. And it is a bonkers play that kind of doesn't make any sense. But I also saw it in this like little play. It's like, there's like 18 characters in this play. It's, it's crazy. And so they had like seven actors. So half the actors were, you know, they're all doing double duty, which is not weird. But what they did is they had a lot of scenes where the actor was playing two characters in the same scene and having a conversation with themselves. So they would be like, you know, fire upon you, Keith, I bite my day. And then you'd turn around and be like, well, I'll say this to you, you know. And it was just, and they would just, the whole thing was batshit. And my wife and I decided right there that if we were ever going to have another kid, uh, our fourth kid was going to be Cymbeline because we were just like, a, it's a badass name because it could be for, you know, probably more of a girl's name nowadays. But we were just like, this play is so crazy. Like, we're going to give this name to this kid and we're just telling this kid, try everything. You are the, you are the try everything kid, right? But by the time we get to four, we're barely going to be paying attention. So, Godspeed. Good luck. Send us, send us a postcard. You're, you're six. That's cool. You know what? I'm sure you can use the train. I'm loving the amount of parenting tips coming through this uh, this pod. Oh, tonight. please do not parent like I do. Like I, I there's lawsuits coming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just to sort of wind down on Kill Shakespeare. I mean, was the ultimate aim to try and make the world of Shakespeare fun? You know, despite the wealth and variety of a storytelling. You know, I I think when it comes to Shakespeare, it's unfairly looked at as literature maybe of a bygone era. You know, only taught in schools. You know, I even remember when I was in school, when you're, you know, studying The Tempest, you're like, oh, God, this is so boring, that kind of thing. You know, but was the ultimate aim to try and make it fun? You know, something perhaps akin to, I don't know, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, you know, that kind of thing. Sort of update it and show that, you know, you spoke very eloquently there about Othello and about the, the racist issues and, you know, being ahead of his time and stuff like that. So was part of it just to try and update the world of Shakespeare and actually reintroduce it to people and remind them, like, there's a reason this work is endured? I mean, I'd say yes. I'd say yes and no. Yes, in the sense of like we wanted we wanted it to be fun because Shakespeare is fun. If like if a knock on effect was like you know I I do remember some guy stopping. I think he wrote us an email and talked about how he was uh, he was a long haul trucker and he hadn't read you know he'd read Shakespeare barely in like grade ten and like basically hated it and just like did the Coles Notes versions, did the bare minimum to try to pass that class. But he was a comic guy and somebody had handed him Kill Shakespeare and then he'd fallen in love with it. And that by the end of book two, he was a huge fan of Othello. He hadn't really, didn't didn't know the play Othello. Maybe that's why this sticks with me, the Othello stuff. Had, had watched a film version, I can't remember which one, of Othello and was like, wow, this is great. And had recently like 
him and his wife had done a date night and, you know, and he lives in a, you know, he lived in a medium sized town that had a, they didn't have a theater, but there was a theater that had a fellow like, you know, an hour and a half drive. They were doing it. And he was like, yeah, we're going to go, we're going to go watch this play. And his wife was like, who are you? And like, where is my husband? And like, from that perspective, that I, we were always like, that's so cool that somebody who dismissed Shakespeare read our comic and then was like, oh, like maybe it just wasn't the right time for me. Or maybe I had a lousy teacher. So that was really cool. But I, I think if we'd gone into it being like, that's our goal, right? It's like, remind you of how great Shakespeare is. Or like, Shakespeare, but fun. Like, I think it would have been a steaming sack of dog crap. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we just, we, we really went in there super excited about the ideas we had for the characters and about what we could do. And then like really our process, we would write the script. And then after we wrote a script, like I had like a, a file of all like lines that I liked from Shakespeare. So I would write the script and occasionally a line would be stuck in my head and I would know to put it in. But a lot of times what I would do later is I would go through this, all these lines that I liked and be like, oh, I can use that line instead of what I wrote, right? Because it, it, it's gonna mean the same thing and now it's actually Shakespeare. Or I'd have some like plot twists or something like that. So we tried to layer in the Shakespeare on top afterwards um, because we just really we just wanted to tell a really good story and you know we arrogantly enough I guess we're like we want this to stand on its own merits so that even if you're a huge Shakespeare fan because it's not a retelling of any of Shakespeare's plays although there's certainly tropes and and repetitions and callbacks and yeah we we you know we really just wanted to believe in ourselves that we could write this really compelling story with these characters that Certainly it helped. Like, I think we did kill Shakespeare. It was just a generic thing. We used all the same story. It was the exact same story. I think it still would have been a very good story. But obviously when you have the emotional resonance of like, Juliet meeting Hamlet or, oh shit, Romeo's not dead. That, that just brings, you know, there's literally hundreds of years of context that you get to play on. So uh, as they say, if you're ever going to go to a party and you don't know anybody, invite your famous friend along. So we invited all Shakespeare's friends and, <laughs> You know, all the people at the comics party who had no idea who we were, they knew our friends, and so some of them got to know us, which was, you know, which is cool. You know, we even got a drink, we even got a drink, some, some ye old mead bought for us at the bar that night. It was wonderful. Sounds perfect. Sounds perfect. And you mentioned that you might have some future plans to return to that world. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, so the near term is like Last Witch, so book one is out, book two is written, we're getting ready to figure out uh, art schedule for book two. Uh, you know, COVID being the lovely thing that it is, everything kind of got mm -hmm. delayed. It would have been nicer for it to hit right on the heels, but say, say la vie. Um, and then, like I was saying, there's uh, this Fela and Trickster and a couple other things. But yeah, I, I've i always had in my head, um, you know, Anthony and I have talked about this. I've always had in my head, like, kind of exactly how, what the very end of the story is. And I had some pretty clear ideas of, you know, the idea of, you know, not free spoiler alert, uh, you know, one of the things that will happen in Kill Shakespeare is the idea of, of Hamlet traveling back to his home, but with some of these other characters in tow and having to deal with what he left behind, right? Which is his, he abandoned his girlfriend, he killed her dad. His former best friend, you know, wants to kill him because he killed his dad. He's got this uncle on the throne. Like, so I, I was always really curious about going back and dealing with that. And I was always curious in the play Hamlet, you know, Claudius is ostensibly the bad guy, but it was always interesting to me of, you know, this guy who kills his brother for the throne, except where Hamlet's father is presented as very much like a, a war, a very strong physical war, aggressive warlike king. 
there's a little offhanded mention in the play about how Claudius ended a war with a letter. So you're like, that's, I mean, that's interesting. He stopped a war with a letter. He didn't capitulate. He didn't surrender. But he also kept, I don't know, how many thousands of Dutchmen from dying on a battlefield? Like, maybe there's more to this. Maybe this Claudius guy isn't as cut and dried. I killed my brother because I'm evil and I wanted the throne. And so we've always wanted to kind of play, you know, we always kind of wanted to play a little bit with that. So yeah, the the next couple of books have been kind of plotted in my head. It's honestly, it's A, it's finding the time. And then B, with every, like every year now that things go on, there is that little bit of like, oh shoot, have we missed the opportunity? Like if, if more Kill Shakespeare came out, do you have a fan base that's like, oh man, I haven't read this for a while, but I am happy to reread what I got and buy some new ones because I really enjoyed that series and it's one that I'll pick up. Or is it, oh yeah, that was a good series. Oh, maybe I'll get to that. But like, like you were saying, Alan, like so much stuff is coming out. But I think ultimately, you know, that's any project you make, right? You, you could you could rationalize not writing anything because, well, shit, there might be five better books that come out that week. You know, thankfully, comics fans tend to buy 10. And, you know, the way things work, as Alan said, you know, we very much talk about following creators. And, you know, although we're, we're talking to you primarily about The Last Witch today, you know, people read The Last Witch and go, oh, what, what else has gone on? And find, you know, circle back and, and suddenly you get new fans for, for an, older, an older title. Um, so, uh, yeah, don't, don't lose your faith, Connor. So, wait, so what you're saying is signing and copies that already got there? <laughs> so, you know, I'll, I'll send you my flight, de- I'll send you my details. You, you don't have to send me, like, business class or anything. Coach is fine. Alan's like, we'll staple you to a wing. <laughs> <laughs> That's our budget. Here's the 88 cents. Buy some industrial staples. Good luck. <laughs> Maybe just sleep for the duration of the flight and don't focus on the comfort, you know? <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's, that's that, that's Ryanair's motto, isn't it? <laughs> well, no good for Ryanair. They just pulled out. They're of pulling Ryanair. out of Belfast at the oh, moment. Really? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're, we're not sad to see them go. To be honest, uh, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a flight service I would not use. Let's just say that the most we're terrifying not. flight of my life was a Ryanair flight. I think most people probably have that story. To be honest, especially if you're landing at Derry Airport, which is the shortest runway in Europe. Nice. No, no. Yeah. This, this was this was good old Belfast, but they they bounced it several times. <laughs> Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. But yeah, we're we're going to enter the third act then of the podcast. And of course, there's only one place to go now. And you know, the the main thing we wanted to chat to you about, of course, is the last witch. You know, the the trade paperback is coming out this week. I was you know bagging them up today because I'm one of those. Uh, anal comic book store owners who bags my graphic novels as well as bags and boards the comics i just really like people knowing where we're situated in belfast is in an old market and smithfield market was very much well known as being the buy trade and sell place so it was all second-hand goods stuff like that so we, we've worked very hard to cultivate a reputation where everything you buy from us is brand new you know so away obviously so so i had to bag up around you know 20 copies of that today but you know but yeah, it's out this week. You know, for those who haven't read it or, or haven't heard about it, you know, give us your boilerplate pitch for it. Uh, Sersha, a young girl, uh, is forced to flee her home after it's burned to the ground by a coven of witches who are hunting her down because she has the power that might just be able to stop their plan to conquer the world. Um, you know, it's uh, Sersha's, uh, she's this 12-year-old girl. She is this, she's feisty. You know, like she's 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 got a chip on her shoulder. She's kind of angry, right? She's been an outcast. She lost her mom. 
Uh, she loves her brother and her father dearly, but she's at that age, you know, the book starts, you know, with that kind of a classic father-daughter fight, right? She wants some freedom. She wants to be able to go out and explore and prove herself and start to become something. And her dad's scared to lose her. Um, you know, and I, you know, that quote-unquote irony is, you know, minor spoiler alert is she, or she loses him quite early in the story. Uh, and yeah, it, it, you know, if you love things like, it's meant to be a classic fairy tale. So if you love Brothers Grimm, or like things like um, I'm thinking of '80s references because you know that's my childhood. Mm-hmm. So things like um, the Dark Crystal, or the Secret of Nim, you know, which are like these classic, you know, classic quest stories that are a little scary, you know, like that are that, you know, not all good things happen, you know. Um, and yeah, it, it's very much a story about, you know, it is very much a coming of age story, which I think is you know pretty much a classic trope of the of the genre. But you know, it's also it's also about that like. Sersha talks early on in the first book about how she wants to be special and how her nan, who joins her, who's kind of the Obi-Wan character, um, who, you know, is, is a green witch and she knows a little bit of very simple plant-type magic, is always told her that, you know, she is special and that this mark on her shoulder marked her as special. Where everybody else saw deformity or, uh, you know, maybe even a mark of the devil, her, her nan always saw this is what it was, this mark that this girl was destined for greatness. But you get into that question where you want to be great, right? And if you want to be great so badly, then it kind of slides into this notion that if I'm great, well, what are you? You're less than. You're not great. And if I'm great and you're not, it starts to justify behavior that you would never have thought to do. And so part of this story is it's like, you know, Sersha has to go on this quest. Every time she, you know, there's this covenant of witches, and every time she faces off with a witch, she's able to use this mark to help you know, to help do battle, you know, the, the mark both allows her to access uh, the, the magic that is naturally running through Ireland. We talk about ley lines and things like that. Um, but it also allows her and it protects her from these other witches, but it kind of siphons off their power. And so as Sersha gains power and book one kind of ends with what I hope is a, kind of a chilling cliffhanger of a young woman who is really losing who she was, this person who was dedicated to protecting her brother and, and, more it was really more about protecting her brother and trying to s- save the world, but it starts becoming more about vengeance and it starts becoming more about her own anger and about her own desire to prove herself. And so, you know, book one starts you on that journey. I don't want to say it's breaking bad, but in like, you know, medieval Ireland, but there is a, there is a bit of that in a way that I think if you're an adult reader and you just love reading, you know, fantasy adventure comics that you will be able to enjoy this. But at a level that still works, that if you're reading it to a, you know, if you're reading it to a younger reader or they're reading it for themselves, that they'll still recognize that art. But, it, you know, it's not going in places that you're like, oh, I, you know, I don't want my kid to see that kind of thing. But, yeah, it, you know, book one definitely ends what I hope is a little chilling. And book two is very is a lot more the empire. You know, it's the empire. It, it, it goes some dark places. There's going to be, you know, there's a couple of. What I what I think are really interesting twists. Hopefully, I'm right. Because if I'm not, boy, that second book's gonna suck. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, and you know, and, but it's also got a lot of fun in it, right? There is there is you know, there's a character Hughes, a half fairy who's kind of a goofball. Her younger brother Brom is just a six year old boy who's just like, I mean, let's face it, if your sister turns out that she could like make trees go on fire, it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Uh, you know, and I love, I love Irish mythology always has great stories of woodland animals. Like, you know, one of my classic favorite tropes of Irish mythology, which I steal in the first issue is that great trope of like the young hero 
who does a kindness to an animal. And then it turns out that the animal is able to repay the kindness. Yes. Um, so there's a few tropes that I think are very specific to Irish mythology that I've tried to bother, borrow. And then there's just some of, you know, some of my favorite storytelling tropes that, you know, in the immortal words of Pablo Picasso, you know, I'm trying to steal so that it becomes a great story rather than just borrow. So you're like, eh. But yeah, it's, I think it's a lot of fun. It, it is a, it's a bit of a swashbuckler. And yeah, I, I've, I've had a lot of nice stories, both from people who are reading it for themselves, but a lot of nice stories of like, oh yeah, I'm reading this with my my daughter. I'm reading this with my son. I gave this to my nephew. And just, you know, it, it sounds like it's a bit of a family bonding book, which, you know, obviously as a dad right now, I'm, I'm a bit of a sucker for. Yeah, I mean, excellent work. I mean, it's, it's genuinely one of the best things that I think uh, we have read in the last few years. I was, uh, I, I got onto it fairly early on and then I was like oh you need to read this right now so uh, I think we, we've all really enjoyed it and I mean alongside you know you're talking about the dark crystal and the secret of Nim very much in the theme but I'd also if you don't mind I'd also oh. add you know from the from the medium uh you know comparisons to bone and also to uh, middle west oh yes uh, okay recently by uh by you know with that 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 I guess that dark fairy tale sort of side to it you know and, the, and that that quest uh, and that, uh, I guess, the, the quest changing the quester, uh, very much in there. And I love the, I love the Nan character. Love the Nan oh, character. You. <laughs> She's up there with. First of all, it reminds me of my gran. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the hard smoking storyteller. <laughs> you know, for sure, that was that always had your back. Uh, you know, whenever your your parents were were more worried about you. You know, so uh, and and also reminded me a wee bit of uh, Grandma Ben from Bone. I don't know if you've ever read yeah, Jeff yeah, Smith's no, Bone. Sure. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, great great characters. But where where did the where did the idea the the the, the central concept of of the last witch come from? Where did that? Where uh, did actually, it's funny. Me? I mean, you're talking about but you guys were talking about prose before, so. The only prose writing I've done in the last little while, a few years ago, a friend of mine was doing a charity book, uh, Eastern Canada. He was a big Hill Shakespeare fan. He was like, oh, would you contribute something? You know, it's this, this charity book for a children's hospital. And I said, yeah, of course. You know, when's the deadline? And the deadline was like like three months. You know, like he, he we'd met at this convention. He'd been, you know, it's always funny. He was like, oh, I didn't want to approach you because you're like, you know, you're, you're the Kill Shakespeare guy. And I'm like, dude, man, like Kill Shakespeare is, is a is a good book, but like, in terms of like where this puts me on the pecking order, like you can you can send me an email. Like I, I still answer my own emails, man. Um, so he was like, yeah, so it was three months. And I was like, I don't think I can get something written in and find someone to draw it in time. He's like, well, just write prose. And I was like, I, I'm not a prose guy. He's like, yeah, of course you are. You're a great writer. And so I did some thinking and I came up with this story of this young girl who's at the edge of the woods, who is with this little boy Padraig and they're going to have a race to the center of the woods to find this old crumbling tower. And so that short story ended up being what was issue number one, is basically the short story, um, almost. And when I was pitching Boom, so I wrote Adventure Time. I wrote some stuff for Adventure Time and for a regular show for Boom. And then I did this uh, Adventure Time regular show crossover, crossover graphic novel, which is super bizarre, and I'm quite proud of it. Um, but was definitely at the very end of interest in both those books. But if you can find it in a discount bin, you should read it. Um, but I've been pitching them like, yeah, you know, like you're so, you know, we, we really enjoyed you doing this book. We'd love to do something with you. And so normally I have like, I'm the guy who's got like the 10 page pitch thing with like the 20 page appendix with the rules of the world as a follow up document. Like I, I think out my stuff a lot before I send it. 
but I was just listing all my ideas in like short paragraphs because I was like, okay, I'll just send them like seven or eight things I'm kicking around. And, and oh, I was thinking about, oh, yeah, there's that, that. For some reason, I think I'd read the story recently. And I was like, oh, I could do something with that. I'm not sure what, but it's kind of fun. And so I wrote something, oh, there's this witch story. And I talked about how there's an eater of the world. And I, and I mentioned a big plot twist, which uh, you know, I don't want to spoil. And so they come back and they're like, yes, that like that which one, that's the one. Like, can we have a meeting on Monday? Like, we'd really like to go deep in on that because, you know, that sounds so great. And like, all I had was that paragraph and the short story, which is like the very beginning of a story. And so that weekend I was like, you know, and what ended up hitting me was in the story when this girl battles this witch there's physical contact between her and the witch and the witch leaves this witch mark on her. And I was just like, I just kind of thought that was an interesting idea. And then in the weekend I was like, no, she should have it already. And it's, you know, you start thinking about, again, you think about classic storytelling structures and what are the tropes and how do, how do these stories work best? And so, yeah, I, and by the end of the weekend, I kind of had this idea for why the twist was the twist. Cause literally I just was like, Oh, this thing happens. Ha ha. That'll be so great. But I had no idea why that would happen. I just thought it was a neat idea. And so, yeah, and then I kind of came to them and, and I just kind of thought, all right, it was a really interesting process for me because I'd never had that process where I'd been like, come up with a story in a day, you know? Uh, it was a good challenge. Actually, it taught me one thing is that when you put under pressure, your brain generally comes up with, your brain comes up with as many good ideas in two days as it will in two weeks. So you just might as well do it in two days. You know, like you'll get better ideas in the iteration part, but like the best ideas are there. Uh, and yeah, and so they they were just like, this is really cool. And then it was this weird thing. It was going to be one big graphic novel. And then the editors changed. And then the new editor came in and was like, why did you just like hand me a 350 page script? And I'm like, well, because, you know, that's like, that's what we're doing. And she's like, no, no, that's not what we're doing. And I'm like, what do you mean? And so thankfully, Boom was very cool and was like, oh, this is a really cool story. And it's, you know, it wasn't 350, it was like, 300 something pages but they're like it's a big epic but actually there's not much fat on this like there's no fat on this so we either have to cut out huge chunks of the story or i guess we have to do two books and so that's how it ended up becoming this two book series kind of sold as one five issue mini and then it's sort of follow-up uh five issue mini uh or maybe four we'll have to decide and i think it'll be same thing it'll be giant size kind of like the like the first run of the last witch had some giant sized issues that were you know 34 pages so it'll be a bit of that for book two um, and yeah, it was, it was just, it was based on the short story. And then we just, I just kind of pumped it out. And I was so lucky to work with V Glass, who's the artist. Like V is just outstanding. Like they're such a talented artist. And, um, you know, every time one of my real fears, this delay between one and two is I've been like, somebody's going to snap up V and V's going to get offered to draw like this, like B tier Marvel book. And they're going to be like, I have to do that. Cause like, that's the smart career move. And I'll be like, yes, you have to. And it's amazing. And oh no, we may never do book two. Cause like, then you're going to go on, then you're going to be doing Spider-Man and all these <laughs> other things before I know it. Um, so thankfully the industry is still sleeping on V a little bit because their work in this book, like I, I think the writing in this book is really great. I, I, I don't normally praise myself, but I do think I did a very good job, but these, these match that and surpassed it. I think like, I can't say enough of, of about their work. It's so good. Um, and yeah, so I was really fortunate that, you know, V and I had met on some other, this trickster project and it didn't work. That one was going to work for them. But I was like, I've got this we other weird Irish thing that Boom just said they want to do and I don't have an artist lined up and I think you're great. And there's one image that you sent in your portfolio that matches exactly my brain what this book 
should look like. And thankfully, it was just these type of madness. You know, they read through it and were like, I love this. Like, this is exactly the sort of thing I wanted to read when I was a kid. Like, let's do it. And, and we did. I mean, going back to that original short story that you wrote, you know, was it always set in Ireland? Was that always the plan against yeah. the background of Irish mythology, even yeah. back then? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I'd always, I'd secretly always wanted to write an Irish mythology story. Um, I think I probably wrote a couple, like, when I was younger in creative writing classes and then felt like, oh, you know, I definitely wrote one. I remember for sure writing one in, in university. But I don't know, maybe feeling... I think, honestly, I think I probably felt a little bit like, yeah, sure, your name's Connor McCurry, but dude, like, you've, you've seen, you've been in Ireland, like, four times and seen it in a dream another four. Like, you know, really? Like, this, you're going to go jump around? But then I was like, ah, screw it. If, I'm, if I can play with Shakespeare, like, you know, <laughs> the Shakespeare crowd is going to be way meaner than the Celtic mythology crowd, right? Like, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, I feel like as a Canadian, you know, I feel the Irish and Canadians, you do share sometimes when you're like, oh, you said something about my culture, and it's actually kind of accurate okay yeah no we're in like thank you like thank for you know it's not another story about the old west or something like that um but yeah it was always meant to be irish mythology i had always wanted to play with something in irish mythology and then like i said weirdly enough this trickster idea which is you know kind of coming out at the same time that was something i started like eight years ago and it just so happened to all come together to start putting out this year so it's super weird to me that after most of my life kind of secretly wanting to do lots of irish storytelling and never doing it that now within the space of 10 days issue one of something and the first book of another thing it's almost like like kind of bad timing like you know but hopefully people like them both they're very they're very very different takes i mean trickster is sort of a guy who's in boston and it's much more going to build into the fairyland and we're going to see how the structure of the fairy world because i've always found that interesting you dive into like the the fairy mounds and like what is it like in the fairyland and then you hear about the wars between like the fomor and the shining ones and so I really kind of wanted to dive into like, what is that class structure? So really Trickster, not to get off topic, kind of talks about class structure here and there. And the last, which is is much more of a personal story about growing up and about how the dangers of wanting to be special. Like we all are special. We should strive to be special. But when me being special comes at the cost of me deciding that you are not or you are somehow less than, and, you know, I didn't set out to do this, but I do think it's unfortunately a bit of a metaphor for so much of the politics, certainly in the United States, but growing in this country, and I know it's growing in your country, of we don't agree, so you're, like, you're not a person to me anymore. And that goes both ways, right? Like, that's not mm. just, I'm, you know, I'm a lefty-lefty-lefty I'm a dude, but it happens on the left as well, right? Yeah. Where all of a sudden you yeah. turn around, you're like, oh, yeah, you're a piece of crap because you don't think the way I do. And it's like... Dude, that's exactly what you're saying you don't like on the other side. Like, you know, like it's got to be a conversation yeah. at some yeah. point. It, it, it can't work any other way. So there's a little bit of that there without it being overt or, uh, overt or anything. But I think as I was writing, I was like, yeah, she starts getting intolerant for mm -hmm. a chunk. And then that's her challenge. You know, can she, she maybe she's going to win the battle, but is she going to kind of lose the war, at least for her soul in that respect? And that you know, that, that is, that question is, is meant to be left open until the very last couple of pages of the comic. Fantastic stuff. And, uh, I, I absolutely get what you're saying. You know, whenever the conversation stops, that's whenever things are most dangerous. Yeah. Know. And there's some people you can't talk to, like not to get total off on a sidetrack, but you know, there are some people where it's like, yeah, it's not worth talking to you, but I can't make you representative of everybody who might think in a similar way as you 
because yeah, like it's just, you know, the same thing. Like I don't, I don't want someone to look at me and say, well, because I talked to someone who thinks the same way about the environment as you do Connor and was a jerk to me that you're automatically going to be a jerk because you're like, I don't know, fossil fuels, we should have a conversation, right? Like, you know, so I, I just, it's just common courtesy at the end of the day, right? You have to give an individual a chance to prove who they are before you decide that that's who they are. At least I, I, I think so. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's no. Cool. I think we're I think we're all in agreement. I think we're all in agreement. But, then uh, I can say you're a jerk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> From an informed position and with the full righteous, you know, arrogant anger of my knowledge, right? Like. <laughs> well, but what you know, with the with the uh, you know the the, the name and uh, and obviously you, you know your name and the uh, you know the, the the certainly Celtic leanings of the book, you had us convinced that uh, we were going to contact you and you'd you'd be you'd be down south or something because we'd. Uh, Recently talked to uh, to Declan Shelby and Rory McConville and a few a few heads, but uh, you you certainly you represented very very well uh, to us, and it was uh, it was quite nice whenever we first got in touch with you. You were so pleased that the the book had been had been picked up, as you said, in the old country. Uh, so for sure, right? Like you know, like it would it would be all you know it would, it would it would suck if it was like oh wow like people you know people really like this book and then there's like this like the last witch is shite you know website you know and like all these irish how did you find out about that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean alan you, you keep sending me twitter links like every week it's like you know it's hurting my self-esteem um but yeah for sure honestly like um, you know without any you know without any hesitation it, it meant more hearing from you know hearing from you guys that you know that there's you know that your shop that there were people who were like yes this is a great story and yes as like as an irish person reading this story i'm like yeah like of course yeah like of course i mean like like it, it, it does mean more 100 percent, it means more and of course the one person that you did annoy who enjoyed the book but did not uh, enjoy the uh, the the being outed was uh, was my girlfriend bruna who uh, shares a and a name with uh, one of the witches in the book and uh, for the longest time Bruna has tried to convince everybody that the meaning of her name is is wonderful but uh, in fact you outed it as being sadness so you're you're not popular there Connor but I I hope that Bruna I hope that she looks at the witch in the book like because that witch has got style <laughs> style for days right like when V turned in those drawings I was like I mean I don't care about fashion but I was like I really love this dress like I am mesmerized by this dress, be like this is amazing. So hopefully, Brona's like, yeah, maybe my name means sorrow, but I'm gonna look good. I'm gonna look good <laughs> while I destroy a town because they like made a pissy comment one day. Yeah, Brona's <laughs> I I don't want to say I don't want to say if this is like you know uh, a name or a characteristic for everybody with that name, but uh, you know, seems like she's being petty, not liking me using the actual proper name of the witch. You know, so just, just gonna put that out there. Please don't kill me, Brona. Please don't kill me. Well, this is where we find out if the one Irish name of what I have always believed what it meant is actually true as well, because I had a friend years ago who had a dog named Saoirse, and she always told me it meant freedom. Now, is that... Oh, that Yes, that okay. is my understanding that that is correct. That we're, is correct. we're okay then, we're okay. <laughs> yes, we're okay. And I'm also, that also, not for nothing, has been one of my favorite things. I actually sent out the, the Saoirse Ronan pronouncer she did from the SNL sketch, you know, mm -hmm. it's... But it's funny because it's been funny listening to people talk about the book and then like either just flat out not say Searsha's name or like just kind of run through it real quick 
or and there was one where the guy was saying it like uh where was he from i want to say they were from he had he definitely had like a deep south twang so he had a bunch of things and then you just hear from the side off off camera it's sayersha it's pronounced sayersha he's like oh sayersha awesome yeah so sayersha and you're just like that sounds so cool that name coming out with that accent right like (laughs) cultures are meshing here but yeah so it's funny actually that was uh that was my sneaky way um so Brom actually looks a lot like my son, uh-huh. whereas Searsha's older than my daughter is. And so, you know, my daughter was kind of like, well, you know, what, what, what is Lachlan? You get to look like him. And, and I was like, so I told her, I was like, well, I had two names I wanted to name you before Peregrine. And Searsha was one of those two names. So this was my sneaky way of naming the character after you, which was like, because my wife was like, oh, Gaelic names. She's like, they're beautiful, but like nobody can ever spell them. And I, Ashling and Searsha were the two I really liked. And she she said, no, we went with my daughter's name is Peregrine. But it was funny because after a while, right before this comic came out, my wife came home and was like, oh, I like, found this Irish, this, Gael- this Gaelic women's name that I really like. Like, I wish we'd talked about it before because it's such a beautiful name. And it was Searsha. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? That was my number, like, that was literally like I, my number two choice. Like, seriously, now you're going to say you, oh, you're killing me she's like and then i was like yeah it's in the book she's like oh that, that name's in your book i'm like when you when you read my books what are you reading like <laughs> come on she's like i don't know the story was good i just didn't think of didn't remember the the, the name character's first name you know <laughs> maybe it was a case of she didn't know how saoirse was spelled so she thought it was a different That's name also i it doesn't look the way i mean that is for us for us dumb north americans i gotta say 92 percent of gaelic names they just look like you just took a bunch of letter, like Scrabble tiles, threw yeah. in a blender, spat them out, and then said, "And we're just going to pronounce this completely different." Yeah, they never, they never sound like they spell. Let's just put it that way. They uh, do not. There's they quite a not, few challenging not to, ones. Not to our, not to our dumb North American tongues. <laughs> um, I mean, I was going to ask just uh, th- this, maybe a completely silly question because you've obviously talked quite a bit about, you know, the tone of the book and it being suitable for all ages. I was just curious if if the book was ever conceived as a book solely for older readers and maybe there's a darker version of this story that exists or was it always hitting that sweet spot of something for everybody? I mean, I think because that original book, because it was written for like the prose story, right? was written for this like um, charity book, which is for kids. And so the whole thing was meant to be like spooky stories was the name of the anthology. So it was always originally pitched as a book that kids could read. But I, uh, I've always had it in my mind that it's probably, you know, it's, it's it's for slightly older kids. I mean, it's really it's for all ages kids, but I, there's a small chance that slightly younger kids could get a little scared. Um, but I mean, I, I really I really subscribe to the notion that the only real difference between children's literature and adults' literature. I mean, there are some things you deal on deal with in adults' literature that you're not going to bring to children's literature for sure. I, I get that. But when you're talking about an adventure story, which you know, a fantasy adventure story, I, honestly, to me, the difference is you're going to tell the exact same sort of story. You're going to not be super violent with it. You're not going to have curse words. And there may be some more complicated adult relationships that you're going to set to the side because it's going to go over the kid's head anyways. But even still, sometimes those make it in in a form that adults are like, oh, I see what that argument's about. Um, So yeah, I don't think I ever like, I don't think I had too many situations that, that I can think of where I was plotting or writing, and then I was like, "Oh, I gotta rewrite that because that's too much, too much for the target audience," kind of thing. Um, 
<laughs> maybe that was greatly mistaken. Maybe I could get a bunch of angry letters. Like, like I said, book two gets a little darker. But I mean, you know, like, the, you know, Shannon Wheeler's the editor on the book at Boom, and she's never been like, um, you know, she's never been like, hey, man, like, we got to change this. Like, this is this isn't going to work. Everybody seems to have gotten that this is the right level of dark, which is good. And how was it setting the title up at Boom Studios? I mean, was that different from working with IDW as you did for Kill Shakespeare? Do the companies work in quite similar ways or lots of differences? I mean, everything. I mean, I've, you know, I've had the privilege of working with, you know, Titan as well uh, and Assassin's Creed would be the three bigger publishers. And anyway, yeah, everybody is unique. Everybody has slightly different ways of doing things. I mean, Boom and IDW are kind of similar because I think of them both as like, I guess I would call them like a mid-major in the sense, you know, they're obviously not quite as big as the big two, but they're well established. They're they're very professional. It's easy to work with them. You know, there were. I mean, I, I knew the IDW people in a different way because, like, we sort of met them in person at New York Comic Con, and you know, in a way, Kill Shakespeare. I wouldn't say we were ever a flagship title for IDW, but I think we were a title that it was. You know, like I was saying before, like this was their putting up their flag, saying, "Hey, IDW is going to do some stuff that you don't think we're going to do." Um, and with with Boom. Uh, I've been really fortunate enough to actually get to meet Ross Ritchie a couple of times, who's such an approachable, nice guy. Like I was so terrified when I first met him and such, such a really nice guy. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't, I would say like Boom is always, is in a more mature stage as a company. And so I don't know if that, what that changes, maybe it's just a bit of a feel, but I, I, I mean, I really enjoyed working with both groups and it's, you know, I think at the end of the day, right? Like all these comic companies, like you're working with people who are super passionately in love with this medium and I feel like people are not as jaded in comics as they are in film and TV because I think the industry is less jading. And maybe that just comes down to there's less money in comics. And so there's less incentive for people to get screwed over. And there's less incentive to work people to death. And like maybe the stakes feel a little and, you know, creators are generally happy because your stuff is coming out the way you want it to. And yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I, I, I don't think I've really met somebody at IDW or Boom who I'd be like, oh, that person's a jerk right like there's just not that many jerks in comics a few but not that many yeah, i mean boom does seem like the perfect home for the last witch i mean we've yes we're, we're really keen uh on what they're they're moving forward with but you know stuff like you know i guess wind and and the likes of good luck you know and those sorts of things it's a it's a great time for all ages indie books yeah it really is they've done i mean yeah boom absolutely was the perfect place for the last witch a hundred percent like it was it ended up being the only place that saw it because they were like you know that was like hey what do you want to pitch us things um but it's funny i think you know and i look back then i'm like idw was a hundred percent the right place for kill shakespeare like i don't think anybody else like i don't know if image would have done that book you know we never even approached them ultimately i, I don't know if image would have done that book like i don't know if it would have made sense now maybe they would mm. but then i think you know like i don't know if they would have done it like it was just, you know, and, and I, it was, I did, you know, it was just horry enough with some of the stuff we did. And Andy Belanger is a, like, he, you know, the guy is a walking heavy metal poster, right? Like the guy, like that is, he is just so baroque. It, like, it's so awesome. Um, so he was a, like, it was just the perfect fit. IDW is exactly what they were looking for. And they were the exact right group of guys. And, you know, it was actually, it was mostly a team of guys when we worked on it. And they were all heavy metal guys. And they all were speaking Andy's language. And it was like, it was perfect. It was just that right, you know, the right group of people in. And I would say, yeah, Last Witch is almost all, I think everybody I'm working with on Last Witch from Boom's side are all women. And it's perfect because they're all these women being like, like you're talking about Nan, right? Like talking about how like, oh man, like that's the old lady I want to grow up to be. 
you know, and like Sersha is the is the 12 year old I wanted to be. Right. And so it's just ended up being, you know, it, it's such an invaluable perspective. Yeah, I mean, Boom is clearly the uh, the home for kick-ass grannies as well, because another title we love so much is Once in Future from Kieran Gillen. Oh yes, and, uh, <laughs> it just has one of the best characters you'll ever you'll ever see in that in that age range in comics. <laughs> Boom Studios, the home of kick-ass grannies. I think that's that's a t-shirt <laughs> waiting can, to be made. Yeah, that is a t-shirt. <laughs> so I just um, wanted to sort of you know wind down just last last couple of questions, being extremely extremely generous with your time. Uh, I just I just wanted to circle back a little bit. You were obviously talking about how much you enjoyed V Glass's artwork and how much it's perfect for this book. Um, just how was that collaborative process? Is it literally you send scripts, they draw it straight away? Is it a case of you you chat about what you want to you know achieve with each page, that kind of thing? You know, is it it was it a very hands on teamwork kind of project, or was it very much you'll write, they'll do the art? Yeah, with V for the first thing, I think in some ways because V came on. Um, not at the very beginning, it was a, it, this, 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 the first book was, was a bit more like, Hey, me sending pages and me drawing and then us touching base when there were changes. But as it went on, like there was more space for, I think V felt more space to sort of be like, Hey, like, let's talk. But that's how I like the second we talked, that's my favorite thing is like, you know, I send a script, you do your thumbs and then we sit down and we chat about the thumbs and like, what do we like? What's working? What could be, what, what can we do different? Like oh shoot, the script doesn't make sense. You're right. Like, you know, that's there's so many times in thumbs where you're like, they do exactly what is, has been asked, at least for me. And then I'm like, oh no, this is dumb. Like you did, yes, you did exactly what was in the script, but this doesn't work very well. And so I think the more we've been able to work together, there have been more times where V's been like, yeah, I changed this because they could see ahead of time that what was on the page could be done better. Um, you know, and we're noodling around at like a, a cool sci-fi, uh, kind of a um, Lord of the Flies in space kind of thing that we've been kicking around. Um, and I'm really excited because that we've been, you know, we've been kind of developing much more together and it's been much more balancing ideas off of each other. And uh, yeah, that's I just that's that's my preferred way to work. Fantastic. Fantastic. And you've mentioned a few times now uh, the trickster. Are there any links other than the Celtic leanings uh, between the word of the last witch and that of trickster? Um, so I'll say yes. I've all, so once I started doing so trickster was something like I said. We actually have been working on that much longer, and we didn't. I'm working with uh, Neil Gibson, uh, Twisted Dark. You may know him. He's a, over in London, does a lot of shows. Great guy. And so we kind of came up with this very deep world of like the fairylands and how they work and who the heroes and villains are there and how our main character, we kind of came with this idea that there was a leprechaun council, this leprechauns have powers of illusion. They were the ones who were trusted to sort of serve as the middle ground. And it's weird that, you know, we were kind of been like, oh, it's really weird that leprechauns have this reputation of being tricksters because actually they're very straight laced. They're like the lawyers of the fairy world, we've decided, except for a few, you know, who decide to break out and go off and do their own thing. And, so we really dug deep into the fairy world. And as I've been finding with um, Last Witch, and we'll see whether, you know, after book two, like, could there be more? There's certainly more stories that I could tell. And, you know, there's a reason we had to change. The original title was Witchmark, and we changed it to Last Witch because it gave me an idea for what the end game of a total story could be. Um, but I, if, if it gets to run long enough, and who knows, uh, I would really like to bring 
our characters. So the the villains, the the, the witches, are in league with a character we call the Eater of the World, uh, the Fairy King, who had been sealed away in Tirnanog centuries ago, and they're trying to break the door. Uh, and you do this by blood magic. It's by the way, the reason there were famines in Ireland was because the witches trying to kill enough people to open this door. And so I would really like, and I have a bunch of ideas around some of the other characters in the story about how they're more intricately connected to our big bad, to our antagonist, this fairy king, than they realize. And yeah, so I, the more I've been thinking it, the more I was like, oh, all this like world building I did for Trickster would actually work really well for Last Witch. Like Last Witch in that sense, I'm like, it almost could be like a bit of a prequel, not a prequel because it's very different characters, but that story of how the fairyland works, why the fairy king is the fairy king, who they killed to take the throne, why they have this belief about humanity that they have. All of that was stuff that I was kind of working out for Trickster with Neil and had kind of said to him, like, hey, if I keep going, like, would you be cool with that? And he was like, yeah, because like <laughs> it's great stuff. We we'll probably won't get it all into Trickster. Um, so yeah, definitely. In, in that sense, there is really almost a weird connection. And if both books ran long enough, I think I would actually enjoy putting some more tangible Easter eggs between the two. Um, knock on wood, I guess you'd have to talk to who ultimately published it. Like we're going to do the first issue on Zoop and then we'll see, you know, we'll see whether we do the whole thing that way or, or try to give the publisher route at that point. But we just kind of wanted to get it out the way we wanted to get it out. So I don't know, maybe two publishers would say, no, you can't, but I, I tend to think like comics is one of those places where they'd be like, that's cool. You know, like go for it. Right. Like, not, <laughs> you know, if that, if that means it's like 10 readers of this one book decide to like check out this other book. Cause you know, yeah, tricksters, you know, like I said, tricksters is a superhero book. It's, you know, it ends like, I let my kids read all my stuff. Um, even the stuff that's not appropriate, I'll skip over language or stuff or, but like we get to the, you know, the last image of trickster, not to spoil anything away, but the last image is of a woman who's got a hot iron and she's about to iron her baby. Ooh. And wow. my kids like burst out crying. Like that night, like my daughter was like, I can't go to sleep because what's going to happen to the baby? And I was like, I'm not going to answer that for you because you're not going to like the answer. So let's talk about reading. Hey, why don't we read some Raina? Um, <laughs> but yeah, so like there, yeah, definitely is a connection. And, but I, yeah, I like, I, I wouldn't be saying, Hey, you know, I wouldn't say to you to the, the 10-year-old who's enjoying The Last Witch, you should go pick up Trickster. I would 100% say to the, the mom or dad who's reading it to their 10-year-old or who just loves Irish fairy tales, yeah, go pick up Trickster because it's it's different enough that you're going to be like, oh, this is a totally different story. But if you like a little bit of Celtic, if you, if you think that's a fun world that's maybe been underserved, it's not taken too seriously. Um, but like I said, you know, it ends on this thing where you're like, oh, like that's that's not good. You know, so we'll see. We'll see. I'm I'm really excited about both of them ultimately. Whenever uh, whenever Trickster comes out, let us know and we'll uh, we'll certainly yeah. put the word out for sure. For sure, and I will. I will send. Well, I'll send you the. I'll send you guys a link. Uh, we can cut this from the interview, but I'll send you guys a link because, like I said, the campaign just started today. So I'll send you guys a link to it, and you guys can check it out. And if you think it's something that your listeners might be interested, or you want to put it in the little thing underneath, then you can definitely do that. Great, great, and uh, you you have, you have sort of. Uh, chatted about it or, or, or mentioned it or, or, or segued towards it uh, throughout the interview, but uh, it appears there is a future for The Last Witch then. 
I mean, that's the plan. That is the plan. We've got two, two books are written, you know, with, like we contracted with Boom to do at least two books. So, yeah, I mean, you never know, right? Comics being comics, like anything is possible when you're a small press title, uh, you know, when you're not uh, IP. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I, uh, one way or the other, the second book will get out. Um, but yeah, I, I, as far as, you know, as far as I know right now, we're going to be doing it with Boom. I have no reason to, you know, there's no reason to think it won't. But yeah, you always, you always worry, right? Like, you know, being being very real talk with you guys and the audience. I think for a lot of comics creators, anytime there's a delay, you just get a little nervous, right? Because unfortunately, that's, you know, I've, I've had, you know, I've had a couple of times in my career where I've had books that were, you know, I've had books that were picked up that got dropped. I've had, I've worked, I've worked with a company where, you know, we were starting to like hire new people onto the book outside of the core team. And then they, you know, some some part of their financing didn't come through, and they had to cut a quarter of their slate. And the book was one of the you know, was one of the was one of the new books that had to go. And I've even been in a situation where we've had 150 on pages drawn of a book, and a publisher's come back and said, "Well, we want to change the terms of the agreement," not not out of malice because of the reality of the industry and being like, "We want to save this book, but we can't do what we originally said we were going to do." And, you know, had talked to the artist and both of us saying, yeah, it, it breaks our heart, but I think we should walk away because it's, you know, we'll walk away, fight another day, try to sell this another time. So you always get a little nervous, but yeah, no, I'm so excited. I, Boom has been so supportive of the book. They've really pushed it that, you know, apparently issue one was one was the best selling Boombox or sorry, Kaboom, sorry, no, Boombox, sorry, uh, a title that they've done. So that sounds really great. Brilliant. I think it was super helped by Wind, which a lot of people read Wind and were like, oh yeah, let's jump on this last witch. And yeah, and I yeah, but even if that didn't happen, I'd I'd finish it myself. Like V and I, you know, we've talked, we love this book so much, you know, that in the delay we've been like, well, worse came to worse and something bad happened and for whatever reason just boom couldn't do it, you know. Would we finish it ourselves? We're like, yeah, we'll hundred percent finish it. So um I just I couldn't leave the story unfinished. Yeah. And there's so much more I could do, but I I I this with this break, I couldn't leave it unfinished, right? It would haunt me in my career, you know. I'll spend my time and we'll, we'll, we'll kickstart it. We'll do it something else. We'll zoop it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll hand draw it and mail it to you page by page if we have to. But yeah, I, I couldn't live with myself if that didn't get finished. Yeah, well, we've got your bag anyway, Connor. Uh, we'll Much do our very, very best to, to push it, right, Alan? Absolutely. You know, the last switch due out this week, 8th of September. Because as you say, timing is everything. You know, we, we could be sitting here chatting to the man that came up with Ratatouille, but, you know, Pixar came in. and <laughs> So timing is everything. Timing is everything. But wow. yeah, well... Twist that knife, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, us, us Irish can be malicious at times, you know, so... <laughs> but uh, no, we'll, we'll, fin- we'll finish off on, on a lighter note. You know, we always like to, you know, first of all, you know, thank you so much for your time. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to, to chat away with you. We, we always like to finish off with the same question. And, you know, we, it's sort of become a little bit of a staple for any time we chat to creators. And it's always a case of asking, do you have a favorite DC title series of all time? a favorite Marvel title series of all time and a favorite indie title series of all time. I get the feeling you've answered one of these if we go down the DC vertigo road, but I'll leave that up to you. Yes. No, that's uh yeah. So actually that's, that's great. Cause normally I'm like, uh, but yeah, so DC vertigo, I mean, I would say like transmit that's, that's my number one. But if I was going to do like an honorable mention, red sun always stuck with me. Uh, and also I was a big fan of the last long Halloween. Um, but you know, I know it's funny. I feel like public opinion in those books, like, got 
jumped on them, like for Whale's Sail and Low, but maybe they got too popular. But I, I always thought those were really well-crafted, fun Batman books. Uh, for Marvel, mine is so, it's such a, mine is a deep cut. And I, it's not a deep cut because I'm like this super like, I've read everything Marvel guy and I'm such a genius, or that it's even particularly that great a book, but it's just like that it's stuck with the kid. It was Spider-Man versus Wolverine. Um, yeah, you know, for those of you who don't know this book, it's Spider-Man, you know, somebody is killing uh, intelligence agents. Wolverine is kind of sent out to deal with it. And Spider-Man just happens to be in East Berlin when it's all going down. And Spider-Man being Spider-Man is like, I don't know who, who or why you're trying to kill somebody, Wolverine, but not on my watch. And I, I love the book. I was a huge Spider-Man fanboy. I loved Wolverine, obviously, as a Canadian. But I love the book because I thought it really... This is such a this is such a nerd you know such a nerdy uh, comics guy thing to say and I love it is I was like you know they really give Spider Man some respect in this book because I I was always like Spider Man is so fast and he is very strong right like he's not Hulk strong but Spider Man is strong I played the I played the Marvel role playing game I know his strength level um, you know and I was just like you know normally people be like Wolverine versus Spider Man that's not even a competition but I thought they did such a good job in that book of showing the spider sense and how inhumanly fast Spider-Man is and the fact that he is inhumanly strong mm -hmm. and why that fight is actually a hell of a Donnybrook, you know, even with Wolverine holding back a little bit. Cause he's like, I don't want to like kill this kid. I, that's why that always stuck with me. And I, and also there's a nice little twist at the end of that book that I didn't see coming as a, you know, 12 year old guy. Um, that's, and that's then, interesting that you say that. Connor actually, because there was a great, uh, there was a great scene, and uh, it was part of Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil run, wasn't it, Alan? Where, uh, where uh, Daredevil is is effectively persona non gratis, and mm -hmm. uh, Spider Man comes to, I guess, tell him just to issue just to five, hang up the I believe. Cowl. Yeah. yeah, and uh, Daredevil, Matt Murdock walks into his apartment, and he senses Spider Man standing there. And he talks about you know the coiled muscle and the you know the strength that he he keeps under wraps and uh, you know how how Spider Man is the best of us you know that sort of so it's a that actually that that Spider Man Wolverine reference that you make even even cuts back to that yeah I feel like I feel, it's funny right because I feel like Spider Man in some ways I I love that part because that's one thing I've always loved about Spider Man it's like yeah like you know this is literally a guy who can he's incredibly strong i mean if he wasn't pulling his punches and, and, and they make reference to it often in spider-man comics but it, it is something to really think about and you think about yeah like not only is he not only is spider-man fighting these most dangerous villains but he's doing it while all the time consciously holding back and i i just think that's one of the things that makes me love spider-man right where it's yeah. like this guy who just like you know spider-man doesn't want doesn't want anybody to get hurt Right? Like Spider-Man is Spider-Man is the number one guy who if there was a work release program for all these supervillains, like he'd be the guy who'd be the sponsor. He'd be like most of these most of these villains with a couple of exceptions who are the true, you know, true psychopaths. You know, like Beetle, like get you out of that, let me get you out of that costume, ma'am. Like I think you got some real potential. So uh and then indie books. Black hole. Black hole. That's the book. Uh Charles, um uh, let me look that up. But uh for those who don't know it, it is there's a super weird book about a sexually transmitted disease that uh, Charles Burns that turns yes. whoever gets it into like a mutant, but not a mutant that can fly and has superpowers, a mutant who has like a second mouth that's just below the neckline or a tail. And a couple of them like are just minorly powerful. You know, like one of the guys is like kind of like beaver and can like 
but it's it's basically just a story about like STDs and about how weird it is to be a teenager, right? Like it really leans into that, you know, puberty metaphor. But all these kids who are as teenagers in this small nowhere town in the Pacific Northwest and are feeling like their lives are going nowhere, and it's really dark and it's really sad, um, and it's got like a, a horrible villain that's kind of been hiding throughout the entire book that like kind of really pre 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 discusses the incel movement. Um, it just there's a lot of stuff going on in that book, and it's you know. I wouldn't say it's an easy read, but it, it's, it is kind of a book when I, when I, you know, when people are like, oh, comics, you know, like, and you can get the, you know, you get that like dismissive uber intellectual type who's kind of like comics, right? Like they're, that's a book I like to hand and say, look, like this, this is literary, this is, this is literary comics and there's lots of great literary comics, you know, and comics do all sorts of things, you know? And so again, I don't think a literary comic is better than a great kids comic is better than a fantastic superhero comic. But they all exist, and yeah, Black Hole is—it is a mind twist. It is an uncomfortable read. Um, yeah, it's 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 a lot, but I I really like it. But yeah, so those are those are those are some of my favorites. Um, and I'm sure, like I said, you know, you hang up and then you're like, oh, but what about? Um, but yeah, I know all your all the listeners already deep comics fans. But hey, here's my challenge to all you folks out there. You know, find someone in your life who says they don't want to read a comic. Find out what they love to read and buy them as a Christmas gift. Or just a, just out of nowhere gift, buy them a comic they'd really you know, that you think they might like. Get them into this fraternity because you know we know we're awesome people. We we need more awesome people in the in the fraternity and the sorority. And if it happens to be Last Witch, you know what? Th that just happens to be what it is. I'm not saying it should be. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm not saying you should. I'm just not saying you shouldn't. It definitely should be. Yeah, I mean, your words, not mine. And I mean, dare I say that The Last Witch would make a much better Christmas gift for a reader than a, uh, a graphic novel all about the dangers of STDs to sit and read <laughs> on Christmas Day. I think The Last Witch might just win on that one. So Yeah, Black Hole Black Hole's definitely like a, that's, that's, a, that's a select audience that's going to dig into that. But if you like weird, that's I will recommend it to you. Well, yeah, Last I, Witch is a safer play. Well, I'll certainly feel comfortable recommending The Last Witch over Black Hole for that all-important last-minute Christmas gift. <laughs> but uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead, kids. Yeah, Connor. Uh, you know, you 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 did you did warn us that you were a good hang, uh, and it was definitely the case. Definitely the case because we're sitting here some hours later, still full of chat, and uh, and uh, it's been great fun. You have been very very generous with your time. Oh well, no, no, thank you, thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys supporting the book, and you know, as retailers and as as, as kind of influencers in the in the industry, you know, I, I appreciate it a lot. And yeah, I mean, I would love to do it again over a jar sometime in person. That can certainly be arranged. Certainly be arranged. But uh, no, for now we'll we'll certainly leave it there. And and again, we're chatting predominantly the last witch again out this week. Great book for all ages. Whether you're an older seasoned reader or you're just getting new into comics, there definitely is something for everyone in this book. And you know that comes with the Coffee and Hero seal of approval and the Keith Miller seal of approval as well. You know, and that's that that means a lot. <laughs> so uh, I'll look forward to a reread myself just with all this chat about it. To be honest, but uh, no, again, it's been a it's been an absolute pleasure, Connor. And again, thank you for giving up your time and uh for being so open with us and uh for recommending an std indie book thank you so much it's it's, it's the role i was born to play <laughs> i'm just gonna go and do my orders for next week and add that to it so <laughs> anyway thanks again man uh, absolute pleasure and i uh, will look forward to chatting to you again thanks guys all right